eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Albert Fish, the boogeyman, sexual sadist, sexual masochist, kidnapper, con artist, cannibal, torturer, murderer, and well, dude who really liked to eat shit, like literally eat it, so much of it. And eating shit is one of the own, uh, one of the many disturbing things this guy was really into. If you think that you're a freak in the bedroom, I'm guessing you're going to feel a little more vanilla after today's episode. Is your pelvic region full of sharp metal pins that you've jammed into your taint? No? then you're no Albert Fish level of freak. Do you like your ass beaten bloody, like really bloody, and then have someone defecate on your face? No? Then maybe your little BDSM games aren't really that crazy, at least not compared to Fish. Basically, there was nothing this dude was above doing, and he was doing it at the dawn of the 20th century when American society was way more prudish than it is now. I can only imagine what witnesses in the courtroom thought when they first heard about his strange, dirty deeds. Unlike many other 19th and early 20th century criminals, we know a lot about today's dirtbag because he gave detailed confessions when he was finally caught for murder, caught decades after he began. He also wrote a lot of very, very strange letters that we can read. Rare to have as much access to the deranged mind of a killer from more than a century ago like we do with Albert Fish. Today's suck is a strange one. My God, is it strange. Also super, super dark, but somehow very humorous. Dark humor to be sure, but I laughed so many times researching all of this. Maybe I'm just broken now when it comes to processing tragedy. The things Albert did and said are so cartoonishly horrible and so specifically just weird. I found myself muttering, what the actual fuck was this guy thinking? So many times in this suck. If you enjoyed the Ed Camper serial killer suck, you're going to love this one. Albert Fish was a ridiculous human being. So over the top. I read way more about him than I needed to just because I was darkly fascinated. So enjoy this darkness, my friends. Be glad it happened a long time ago and that this particular boogeyman wasn't alive while you are. Be real glad you have absolutely nothing to do with the creep of all creeps, the boogeyman himself, Albert Fish, today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time 
Monday, Meat Sack Nation. Work and wait. It's time for the cult of the curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Praise Mojangles and glory be to Triple M. And today's Time Suck is brought to you by Lisa. Lisa is on a mission to give your body the rest it needs with two awesome mattresses plus accessories and bases for a better place to sleep. They also believe in providing a better night's sleep for everybody. And to date, they've donated more than 32,000 mattresses through more than 1,000 nonprofits. Hail Nimrod and hail Lucifina. She likes getting good rest as well. So get 15% off your entire order at lisa.com slash timesuck and use promo code timesuck. That's lisa, L-E-E-S-A dot com slash timesuck, promo code timesuck. Last donation reminder for the month of May, our space lizards helped us donate $2,200 to the Leo Support Foundation that raises money to purchase protective and life-saving equipment for police officers. Link in today's episode description for anybody who wants to donate additional funds. Also, huge thanks to all you quick draws who got to the uh, round two street team sticker packs. Spreading the suck one sticker slap at a time. All 200 sticker packs were gone in the first five minutes. Hail Nimrod. Now get to sticking! On July 8th, we'll randomly select a winner who will receive over $100 in Time Suck merch. There will be raffle-style drawings, uh, or a raffle-style drawing with each slap of a sticker, increasing your odds of winning. So tagging more photos on social media with hashtag spread the suck increases your chance to win. And, and thanks for the excitement about that. We're excited to see what uh, crazy places you guys stick these stickers. Uh, big thanks to everyone who came out during the Game of Thrones series finale back on May 19th in Spokane. The live anthill kids suck. Much bigger crowd than the year before. Uh, Thanks for the progress. Off to Florida this week. Going to be at the Comedy Zone in Jacksonville, Florida, May 30th, 31st, and June 1st. Then Omaha, the good old Funny Bone, June 7th and 8th. Then Raleigh, North Carolina. Charlie Goodnights, June 13th, 14th, and 15th. Come on out. Meet other fun people. Enjoy live comedy. I think I put on a pretty entertaining show. So I like how it's it's shaping up. Going to record a new special in October. I feel like it's coming together. Ticket info for the entire 2019 Happy Murder Tour uh, stand-up tour. So many more cities at DanCummins.tv. Los Angeles, San Diego tickets, uh, the Comedy Store, both locations. Those tickets now on sale. And speaking of sales, we're having one. We're having a Memorial Day sale in the store right now. Happy Memorial Day. 15% off everything if you use the discount code WINTERISOVER in honor of the Game of Thrones wrap-up and in honor of winter hopefully actually being over. Yeah, winter is over. All one word, no spaces, no capitalization needed. Discount jumps up to 35% if you're a Patreon Space Lizard because the standard Space Lizard secret code saving of 20% gets bumped up another 15% for Memorial Day savings. Frisbees, tank tops, stickers, hats, t-shirts, prayer candles, challenge coins, hoodies, so much more in the store. So get in there and big thanks to our veterans and service members. We should all take a moment today honoring the brave men and women who died while serving in the U.S. military. Happy Memorial Day to you all. I'm the master of combining words. I'm the master of trying to say uh, the the word I'm about to say and the next word at the same time. My brain loves it. Now that's enough for fun. Lighthearted announcements. I know that's not what you're here for, at least not entirely. Time to get dark and weird with a tale about one of the darkest, weirdest motherfuckers I've ever read about. Albert Fish. No real context necessary for today's dirtbag, 
other than, you know, knowing that back in the late 19th and early 20th century, it was way easier to get away with being a real life monster than it is now. If you find yourself thinking, how the hell did he get away with that? The answer is almost always because it was a long time ago and it was a lot harder to catch bad guys. That being said, the good guy who did finally catch today's bad guy uh, did some seriously kick-ass detective work. I was beyond impressed. Dude took serious pride in his job and if it wasn't for him, uh, more people would have died for sure. So at least today's tale isn't only jokes and bad news. Uh, so let's get to it. Let's look at the never-ending parade of bad news that was the life of Albert the Boogeyman Fish in today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. Hamilton Howard Fish was born in Washington, D.C. on May 19, 1870. At some point in his childhood, some sources say when he was as old as 15, others say as young as preschool, Hamilton begged his parents to let him go by the name of Albert instead of Hamilton after other kids made fun of him, giving him the nickname of Ham and Eggs. Uh, hard to believe someone who would grow to be such a massive sadistic piece of shit was once crying about being called Ham and Eggs. Based on the allegation of this type of teasing, I'm going to say he begged his parents around preschool age, calling someone ham and eggs and being bothered by being called ham and eggs. That, that's got to be some kindergarten shit, right? So funny what bothers us when we were little. Uh, my, my first reaction to this was, who fucking cares? What stupid nickname the kids gave him? Ham and eggs isn't that bad. It's not like they were calling him ham face or pig dick or pork nuts or some other dumb play off the, the ham in Hamilton. But I guess when you're five, you know, that shit means everything. It's devastating. I actually remember some older kid on the school bus back in Riggins, Idaho, Joel Kennett, telling me I had a giant head one day when I was around nine years old. I can still picture his face, his smug face as he said and walked by. I'm sure he would never remember this for a second. But he said that, he, he laughed, other people laughed. You know, he said it looked like Frankenstein. And, uh, and I remember feeling super depressed for weeks. He never brought it up again. But I worried about that, uh, that shit for the rest of my childhood, worried about the size of my head. Don't give a shit now, but horrible then. You know, kids were circling around me just chanting, ham and eggs, ham and eggs, ham and eggs. I, I probably run home crying too. Beg my parents, let me change it. Super weird what he changed it to though. Hamilton was born the youngest of four kids. Walter, Annie, and Edwin Fish were his older siblings, but he did have another older brother that he never got to meet who died as a baby, a boy named Albert. I think it's weird that his parents let him change his name to the name of his dead older brother. Like strange to me just to pass it on to another kid like as a, like a hand-me-down pair of jeans. I mean, I guess you could be look at it like a tribute or for whatever reason, it feels a little disrespectful to the new kid to me. Like, like he's the replacement. Just good news, everybody. We've got a new Albert. It's like he never even died. Yesterday, we had some shitty scrawny little ham and eggs. Now, new Albert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, replacement Albert's father was Randall Fish, a riverboat captain who was 43 years older than Albert's mother. Yep, 43 years older. So for sure, creep. And if you think I'm being judgy right now, yeah, totally am, 100%. That is too big of an age gap. It's fucking selfish. Dude was 75 when Albert was born. Dude was born in 1795. His wife, Ellen Fish, originally Ellen Hoswell, born in 1838, put her around 32. I just turned 42. So that'll be like if Lindsay and I, you know, uh, left me, if Lindsay left me, and I ended up marrying somebody else who would be born next year. <laughs> I mean, unless I guess you're wealthy enough to provide a super nice life for the young mother of your children after you die, I just think it's so messed up on every level to do that to somebody. And, and Randall wasn't wealthy. He was a poor riverboat captain, a poor riverboat captain who wanted to share his bed with some, some young piece of ass in the days before reliable birth control. 
There are no birth dates listed for Albert's siblings in any of the articles online about Albert and three different biographies I found. No date for when Randall and Ellen got married, but if he had three older siblings, and at one time a fourth older sibling, that means that Randall and Ellen had four kids before 1870. So safe to assume, I think they've been together since at least 1865, more likely closer to 1860, which would mean a 63-year-old dude started a family with a 20-year-old woman. If my daughter Monroe, when she's a sophomore in college, introduces me to her 63-year-old boyfriend, I'm going to go ahead and say now that I for sure will not fucking approve. I'm probably going to want to kill him. Probably going to want to put his head on a stick, mother. Get my zapples real angry, Grandpa Horndog. And I think it was really uncool for Randall to do this in the late 19th century when 63 looked a lot different than it does now. Today, 63 can be fueled by modern medicine, previously unavailable nutritional supplements, vitamins, physical training programs. They can look pretty damn good. I've seen people in their 60s at the gym who are physical specimens for any age, like legitimately sexy, ripped, bulgy muscles, right? Hot, hot little butts, hot little abs. 63 now can be vivacious, but not then. You're at least a little decrepit when you're 63 in 1870. How is your arthritis-ridden ass going to help Ellen raise those kids? I mean, I know you're still plenty spry enough to be a riverboat captain, but maybe not the best time to start a big family. Uh, turns out it really would be a terrible time for old Randall to start a family. In 1875, Randall died of fucking old age. Uh, it was called senile debility, but basically he died, he's died listed as having died of old age. In an ambulance after being removed from a dining saloon in Washington, D.C., probably died of a heart attack. Replacement Albert claims to have very few memories regarding his father. The only two significant ones, Fish would later say, was a memory of looking into his father's face and then a memory of his dad giving him the nickname of Stick in the Mud. Fun. First, he's ham and eggs. Then he takes his dead brother's name because he's being teased for that nickname. Then his dad gives him an arguably worse nickname. (laughs) Old Randall sounded worse and worse. Just some crusty old, pervy, verbally abusive riverboat captain. Where's little Stick in the Mud? Little creep ate my last piece of bacon. Get his on here. Get, a, get in a hot little piece of Scott Irish ass in here. Send in sugar tits. I want to talk to sugar tits about sticking the mud. Uh, when Randall died, he left Ellen with nothing, and then replacement Albert and his three siblings were sent to live in an orphanage when Ellen, previously a stay-at-home mom, wasn't able to provide for all of them because she didn't have any, any income skills. In the orphanage, a place called St. John's Refuge in D.C., uh, on the same block where the George Washington University Summer and Special Programs currently is located, Shit started getting real weird for little Albert. He began to exhibit the first signs of a growing relationship between sex and violence. During his time at the orphanage, Fish would be both beaten and would beat other children. And unlike, I'm guessing, most of the other children, uh, he liked it. He liked he liked both. Bring on those sweet beats in any form. Early in his childhood, Fish began to feel aroused both by being beaten and also by, being, uh, by beating others. Sadomasochistic uh, tendencies showing up very early. Fish would state years later that he felt that his time in the orphanage ruined him as a human being. Who knows if there's any truth to that? Uh, Would he have turned out differently if he had not been sent to St. John? We will never know. But we do know he had a rough time there. And we know he definitely didn't want to be there. Orphanage records described him as a problem child who ran away uh, every Saturday. Uh, At St. John's, I doubt it was every Saturday, but that's what he said. At St. John's, Fish claims he was talked into some sort of masturbation game by the other children. Uh, just like I'm sure most of you were taught, right? I mean, I mean, who doesn't remember playing at least one or two masturbation games with other kids in school? I have a lot of fond memories of playing hops jerk. Remember that one? It's the same rule as, as hopscotch, but you have to jerk off the whole time you're jumping. Uh, then there was tether jerk. Uh, it's like, it was like tether ball, but instead of hitting the ball, 
uh, around the pole with your hand, you have to hit the ball with an erect penis uh, while you're jerking it off. So, so many fun games. Merry go jerk, monkey jerk off bars, jerk rope, uh, capture the flag while you jerk. Pretty self-explanatory how most of those are played. And of course, I'm being ridiculous. Fish never went into great detail about what he meant by his reference to a masturbation game. We just know that this game was some type of recurring situation where he ended up uh, jerking off in front of other kids at the orphanage. And then he got caught by the nuns who spanked him for jerking it, which turned him on even further, which led to more masturbation and then more punishment and then more masturbation. Just a vicious cycle of just beatings and jerks. Uh, Fish claimed to have had one nun teacher in particular who apparently really seemed to enjoy giving the boys bare bottom spankings. So she's probably a pedophile herself, uh, which she doled out regularly. And, and we'll see soon enough that Albert really liked being spanked, uh, really into spankings. He took that interest to an extremely pathological level. Uh, did these early sexual interests set Albert Fish on a collision course with future extreme sexual depravity? Maybe. But if so, why him? Other kids undoubtedly were being spanked and jerking off around the orphanage. What a fucking weird place this was. Uh, why didn't they end up like Albert did? Well, for one thing, I doubt the other kids had the same amount of mental illness in their family tree that Albert did. In just two generations of Albert's family, his and the generation before him, at least seven people, apart from Fish himself, suffered from various obvious mental afflictions. One paternal uncle suffered from what is described as a religious psychosis, ended up dying in a state psychiatric hospital. A younger brother of Albert's was regarded as being feeble-minded. His mom was said to be, quote, very queer and was said to be have heard things on the street and have uh, seen things. And, and by the way, that word meant a very, had a very different connotation back in the early 20th century, late 19th century than it does now. Nothing to do with homosexuality. Uh, mom possibly is paranoid schizophrenic. A paternal aunt was considered, <laughs> I love this, just quote, completely crazy. I diagnose you as being completely crazy. There's not, there's not one part of you that isn't insane. Uh, a brother suffered from chronic alcoholism. One of his sisters had some sort of mental affliction. And who knows how many other family members exhibited symptoms of some type of undiagnosed mental illness lost to history. Now, to be fair, this was a time when mental health diagnostics and treatment were one hair away from the Spanish Inquisition or witch trials. We've looked at early insane asylums way back in the suck. The sister with some sort of mental affliction might have just sassed her elders a few too many times, you know, might have had uh, political opinions the people around her didn't, didn't care for. However, based on how crazy Fish will reveal himself to be, I do think there's actually there actually probably was quite a bit of legit cray-cray in old Fishy's tree. Quite a bit uh, of blatant mental illness on both sides of Albert's family. His dad's old-ass sperm probably didn't help either. Uh, seriously, evidence from numerous studies does suggest that aging sperm plays a role in certain mental disorders like schizophrenia. From age 60 to 80, the rate at which certain genetic mutations are found in sperm has been found to be three times as great as that of men in their 20s. The old dirty riverboat captain wasn't shooting blanks, but he also probably wasn't shooting top shelf uterus bullets. Uh, Fish also suffered from a, a concussion when from falling off a cherry tree in an early age that led to severe headaches, dizzy spells, and a stutter. As we pointed out in past serial killer sucks, a large number of serial killers have suffered head injuries in childhood that can add to a lack of empathy, other deviant behavior. If certain parts of the brain that process attributes like empathy and impulse control end up getting damaged. Fish was also a chronic bedwetter until the age of 11. Bedwetting was thought at one time to be an indicator of future murderous behavior when combined with cruelty to animals and an interest in starting fires, the classic McDonald triad. And while that triad has been disproven, as we've shown in previous sucks, as possessing any strong positive correlation with violent tendencies, I still think it's worth noting that he went to bed the whole time he was at that orphanage, which I can only imagine led to additional beatings which further reinforced his sexual association with violence. If he was sporting wood 
throughout all those beatings. Another super strange event, a super strange event that shaped Fish's later sexual interests while he was at the orphanage was an incident where he saw several older boys steal a horse, tie it up, soak the horse's tail in gasoline, and then light the horse's tail on fire, as boys often do. I mean, what healthy boy hasn't lit at least one animal tail on fire? When I grew up, that's what you had to do for graduation. You didn't get a diploma unless you torched one critter's uh, tail. But seriously, they really did this. Then they untied that poor horse and just watched it run around trying to swat the fire out, you know, just laughing as they watch. And apparently witnessing this brutal incident gets little replacement birdie diamond cutter hard. Nothing puts some steel in your underoos like watching a horse try to put out his burning tail. (laughs) What the fuck? Years later, Fish himself would start, (laughs) years later, oh my God. Fish would start soaking cotton balls in kerosene. And then he would shove them up his ass and then light them on fire, which I, I, you know, I get it. I mean, how are you supposed to come if you don't have a burning cotton ball in your colon? How weird is this tale already? We've only covered Fish's life up to the first nine years. In 1879, when Birdie fire in the butthole, Fish is nine. His mother, Ellen, gets a government job that allows her to bring children back, her children back home. And Ellen quickly learns that old replacement Bert is a very different boy than he was a few years prior but you already knew that. And then he quickly gets even weirder. At some point between the age of nine and 12, Albert develops a number of additional disturbing interests, uh, more than just lighting up his colon like a Roman candle. He also gains a sexually aroused interest in drinking piss, known as urolagnia. And he also starts literally eating shit. Uh, it's a caprophagia, caprophagia or the ingestion of feces has been linked through numerous psychological studies to obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, depression, other mental disorders. And I know this is messed up. (laughs) When I first read about how eating shit is linked to depression, I laughed so hard because for whatever reason, I just started picturing just some forlorn dude just like sitting alone, like like a dining room table, just looking so sad and just eating from a bowl of shit (laughs) as if, as if it was like a bowl of cereal. Just gobbling down just one sad spoonful of shit after another. Hey, buddy, why why are you eating a bowl of shit over there? Well, I don't know. (sighs) Just just sad, I guess. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? Ah, Thinking all of that is probably a strong indicator that I also have some sort of mental affliction. Uh, By the time Fishy turns 12, he also begins to enjoy self-administering pain with a nail-studded paddle. Of course he does. Or a homemade cat nine tails, this type of multi-tailed whip that originated as an implement for severe physical punishment, uh, notably in the Royal Navy and Army of the UK, the United Kingdom. How the hell he got a hold of one of those bad boys when he was so young, I have no idea. By the age of 12, in 1882, young strange fish <laughs> also starts regularly visiting public bath houses uh, to secretly watch young boys undress. Not all that creepy at 12 for a young homosexual or bisexual to do that, but I do find it creepy here because of what I know about his later life, about his, about his interest in a certain demo. Around the age of 11 or 12, Albert also enters into his first homosexual relationship with a local telegraph boy who may have been the first person to introduce him to piss drinking and shit eating. The more I learn about his childhood, the more I appreciate having friends, the friends that I did when I grew up. Like my friends may have encouraged me to do stupid shit, like hiding up on a hill and throwing apples at cars and trucks passing, uh, you know, down through town on the highway, which is a real, real good way to fire up a friend's dad at a sleepover. But no one ever asked me to literally eat their shit. And for that, I am thankful. 
Little else is written about little birdie butt buffet until he reaches the age of 15 in 1885. That year, he stops going to high school, starts working as a house painter, and apparently gets pretty good at it. It's a skill he'd be able to make money on off and on throughout his life. In 1890, at the age of 20, Albert moves to New York City with his siblings and mother. He gets work in New York as a painter and decorator, which gives him unsupervised access to various people's apartment buildings, which is not good. He'd later claim that his job also gave him access to a lot of unattended children. Really not good. And when he thought he could get away with it, he claimed that he started luring young boys down into basements where it would be less likely to have someone hear them screaming when he was attacking and raping them. Over the course of his life, he would claim to attack somewhere around 400 kids. Albert claimed he usually targeted black children, thinking that the police were less likely to investigate their complaints. Dude was very aware of how horrible his behavior was. At the same time, he was beginning to molest and rape young boys. He also began regularly visiting brothels where he'd pay local adult prostitutes of both sexes to whip and beat the ever-loving shit out of him. And I'm guessing he also paid them for a variety of other kinky sexual acts. And and there's there's also no way that some of those prostitutes didn't shit on old birdie butt heat. I mean, I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't think that they had to have, to be sure. Uh, let's check in with an expert, uh, uh, please welcome sometime fe- feminist activist and all of the time pimping and prostitution expert chicken Joe into the suck dungeon. Bok, bok, playboy. Bye bye. The defecation and sanitation is a difficult combination to pull off in a proper sexual situation. If you want a tapeworm or a rug burn, get down on your knees and take a sip off the brown arm. Eating butts a shortcut for putting cholera, hepatitis, and dysentery in your good food gut. Salmonella, E. coli, whole lot of different types of fuss that ends in virus. All gonna make your body start to rust when you munch on that nasty old ass pus. Soak that smut, lick a clean bud, put your finger in, even ding-a-ling it. Don't never play ass to mouth, you sick ass butt slug half-wit. Chicken Joe would love a warm hole, but not one to be spraying. You feel me? You dig? You hear what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, there you go. Solid medical advice from Chicken Joe. That was Chicken Joe's way of saying that eating feces is a good way to catch a variety of bacterial, viral, and parasitic infections, so maybe don't do it. So much knowledge in one chickeny pimp person. Now back to fish. Nearly a decade after moving to New York City in 1898, Albert gets married to 26-year-old socialite and New York City opera patron Edith Rockefeller, daughter of industrialist and oil baron John Davison Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller is widely considered one of the richest people in modern history. John was worth $1.4 billion when he died in 1937, equivalent to over $24 billion today. And it's believed that Rockefeller's money, his love for his daughter, Edith, his fear of public scandal, and his enormous social influence is what enabled Albert Fish to do what he did for so long. Rockefeller is rumored to have once said to Albert, I don't care for what you do, just as long as you don't get caught or ever piss all shit in my daughter's mouth. And don't ever, ever, Light my sweet little angel's butthole on fire. And that, of course, is utter nonsense. Albert Fish did not marry Rockefeller. He's a fucking deranged dirtbag. Fish did get married in 1898, though. He got married to a woman named Anna Mary Hoffman, who was 19. Albert was 28. Albert's mother was the one who set it up. The couple would go on to have six children. Albert Jr., why not keep that name going? Uh, Anna, Gertrude, Eugene, John, and Henry. Poor Anna. She had sex with this creep at least six times. That is six times too many. For the next 20 years, Fish seems to have done his best to provide for his family. A court psychiatrist years later would say that his children did agree that he did his best to put food on the table and a roof over their heads. He also, according to later prison interviews and evaluations, 
continued to rape, molest, and torture an untold number of kids in basements around New York City. So maybe he didn't exactly do his best. Or maybe Albert Fish's best is still doing really heinous things while also doing at least some good things. In 1903, Fish turned to theft to put food on the table and got caught. A few sources report that in 1903, when he was 33 years old, he went to prison for the first time, spending 16 months in Sing Sing, an infamous prison in Ossining, New York, before being convicted for grand larceny for embezzling money from some store he briefly worked at. Over the next several years, Fish was Fish has several more run-ins with the law, being arrested twice for writing false checks, getting a suspended sentence each time. He'd be arrested five additional times before being sent away for good years later for murder. A probation report lists most of the reasons for his additional arrest as being unknown with a petty larceny charge thrown in there. In 1910, while working as a painter in Delaware, Fish ends a sexual fling by doing something he for sure should have been arrested for. He begins a short-lived, semi-consensual, sadomasochistic extramarital relationship with a 19-year-old mentally challenged man named Thomas Kedden. And Thomas will learn that Bertie Fire in the Butthole Fish is willing to take a dangerous sexual game further than anyone in their right mind should. Also, I say their relationship was semi-consensual because Kedden, again, mentally challenged, and I highly doubt he knew all the things Albert was about to do to him. Fish would later claim that Thomas was looking for an older man to mentor him so he could change his life. <laughs> and if, if he did really want someone to change his life, holy shit, wish come true. Before meeting Fish, Albert claims that Kedden was riding the rails, illegally hopping on trains to bounce around living as a hobo, and also trading blowjobs for protection. So, you know, he was doing pretty well for himself. Albert and Thomas were together for roughly uh, a little less than a month. And it appears they spent a good time Good deal of that time consuming each other's urine and feces and putting uh, each other through a whole lot of extreme BDSM role-playing beatdowns. Just, you know, bro stuff. Just standard hazing ritual stuff. Just boys being boys. Uh, Fish claimed he brought Kedden to an abandoned barn after about 10 days of sex in a rented room. And then he tied Kedden up in that barn and locked him in a room and spent two full weeks torturing the shit out of him. Said he had to bring him to this room because he just couldn't do what he wanted to do in the apartment. Kedden would scream too much. I'm strongly guessing he ignored Kedden's safe word multiple times in this barn. He brutalized and degraded this dude in ways I can't imagine anyone actually wanting, in, in ways that someone should be arrest, arrested for doling out. Albert would write about the time he spent with Kedden in the barn in great detail when he'd be arrested many years later for the murder of a little girl named Grace Budd. Here's what Albert himself has to say about his relationship with Kedden roughly 25 years after it happened, as documented in a police report. The excerpt I chose starts right before Albert took Thomas to the barn. And this is going to be a lot of really graphic sex fetish stuff. Uh, I, I would launch into a super scary stuff segment, but really it's, it's just more weird and kind of disgusting than scary. Uh, Fish said, I wanted to lash cut, burn a nice, big, fat, pretty bare ass like Thomas had. Torture him, hear him scream with pain. I cannot do it here to many people. I began to look around. About a mile away, there was an old farmhouse. It had the name of being haunted. No one had lived in it for several years. Stood back from the road about 200 feet. Back of it was a barn. Three stalls and room for a carriage. Upstairs, hog loft and coachman's room. In it was a bed and a chair. The door and lock was in good order with a key. It was just a place to whip and torture Thomas just as I'd wished. I put a chamber in the room for him to use. Then one rainy day, I brought a blanket and we came to the torture chamber. I made him strip bare naked and locked him in. Then I went back to my room. Next day, I did not go to work. I brought a sharp knife, box of matches, and a pint of alcohol. 
I went back to the old house and got his clothes and put them with the other things in one of the stalls. There was a well in the yard, nice cold water. I filled an old pitcher full of water and gave it to him to drink. Then I cut about 20 switches off some blackberry bushes. They were full of thorns. I brought two book straps they use in school. I took up three switches and the straps and tied his hand behind him, then his feet. Now I said to him, I have you, just where I want you, in a way I intend to keep you for the next two weeks. Then I turned him over on his belly and began to torture his nice fat ass. I used one switch at a time, struck him as hard as I could. Each blow, the thorn stuck in his flesh. Often I would drag the switch instead of lifting it. Then it would tear and rip the cheeks of its fat ass. How he did scream. It was sweet music to my very soul to hear him and know that no one else could. Now this, Jesus Christ, this is the beginning of why I think this was all semi-consensual at best. Fuck, did Thomas really want this to happen to him? Could he possibly be enjoying this? I mean, hardcore masochists do exist, but at what point are you no longer pleasing someone sexually and instead just re-victimizing someone who clearly has a, has been sexually abused or who doesn't have a healthy idea of what their right to say no is or what sex should be or have a healthy opinion of themselves or have full cognitive abilities? Again, I know plenty of psychologically healthy people enjoy hardcore masochism, but as you're going to find out, oh shit, this, this is not that. Albert continues. Then I spanked him. How the blood did spat on the blanket and all over the wall. Then I took the knife and slid his fat ass between the cheeks. I held my mouth to his ass and sucked the blood. Then I filled the pitcher with water, untied his hands, locked him, and I went home. Next evening, I brought another blanket, a small hammer, tacks, and six candles. Then I went to work in the day, and then I could work in the day and torture him at night. I tucked a blanket over window, and by the light of the candle, I could see him. For five days, all he had was water and whippings. Then I brought him sandwiches and coffee. He was so hungry, I made him eat his own number two before I gave him food. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Then I made him lay on his back in bed. I turned both of his legs backward on his head and strapped his feet to the head of the iron bed. Then I had his nice, pretty, fat ass turned up to me to do whatever I could think of, and that was plenty. The whole package of needles in the cheeks of his ass. It looked like a pin cushion. I stuck a pin all the way through his dicky and one between his two balls. What the fuck? Ah! Anyone still think this is sexually enjoyable on any level for Thomas? I mean, even if he claims to enjoy it. <laughs> Could he? Could he really? Does this cross some type of moral line? It does, in my opinion. If I was single and someone wanted me to do to them what Albert Fish is doing to Thomas Keaton, I would for sure decline. Maybe tell them I was sorry for whatever had happened to them that led to them being asked to be treated like that. This isn't sex. This is just fucking brutality. Disguised as sex. And of course it gets worse. Albert says... That was a Saturday night. I left him just as he was all night and went home. Sunday, I brought some food and a bottle of peroxide. I pulled the needles out of his ass, dicky, and balls. How the blood did pour when I pulled him out of his dicky. It was as blue as ink. I poured peroxide on his ass and dicky and then smeared him good with Vaseline. Then I untied his feet and let him rest. I went to, he went to sleep. Then I jabbed a long needle in his belly and woke him up. Then I fed him. This guy's so fucking insane. From 9 a.m. Sunday until 11 p.m., I whipped, cut, and burned his bare ass, except at noon and 6 p.m. when I went out for food. To weaken him and keep him, so I gave him food but once a day, I gave him a tablespoon, and he ate much of his own number two out of the chamber. In short time, both of us got to like it, and we called it peanut butter, and the number one we called cider. I let him rest about an hour. Dude! In addition to being a brutal bastard, he was just so fucking gross. Torturing this dude and then eating his shit and drinking his piss. So grateful, I have no desire for any of that. And he's not even close to being done. Then I bent his legs over his head again and tied his feet. I switched him hard between the cheeks of his fat ass. 
And when the thorns did stick in his flesh, I dragged them so they would tear his ass. How he screamed. Then I spilled alcohol on his bare ass and dicky and then set them on fire. What? He just set him on fire? And and dicky, what's with saying dicky all the time? Why, why isn't he saying cock? It makes it even creepier to me. Even though Thomas was of age, at least technically, at least physically, Dicky adds the reek of pedophilia to this for me. Ugh. Want me to pour some more gas on your bottom, little buddy? Burn your dicky up a little bit? Oh, heat up those sweet little nuts to touch. This guy was so insane. Why can't people like this be the only people who are ever suicidal? Like, if you start wanting to tie someone up, make them eat your own sh- shit, light their dick on fire, why can't you just think, or I could just throw myself off a roof? No more sweet, gentle, kind people leaving early. More Albert Fish types, please. Uh, Albert continues. I clapped my hands and jumped with joy when I heard him scream. This is from the burning. It hurt like hell while it lasted, but the alcohol burned off quick. I spanked him, switched his bare ass until I was tired out. I spread paper on the floor, made him lay in his belly. I stripped naked and done and did a, a heap of number two on his ass. Then I turned him on his back so he would be full on it. I had him in my behind and I sat down on his face and I made him lick my bare ass clean with his tongue. By then, I knew I had him weak so I could master him. <laughs> now it takes a turn that would really surprise you. This is anyone other than Albert Fish. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's hard to process this stuff is even real. Then I let him play Papa. <laughs> Everything I had done to him, I made him do to me. He spanked, switched, cut, and burned my bare ass. He made me jump and yell when he sunk the, horns, the thorns in me and then pulled them through my flesh. How I screamed when he set my ass on fire. It hurt, but I got a big kick, a thrill out of it. Many times when I had him tied up, I was tempted to slice veal cutlets off his nice fat ass, take them out in the yard, make a fire, roast them. My mouth watered to see what it would taste like. I always wanted to eat a boy's nice fat ass. I also had a strong desire to cut off his prick and balls, split them open, roast them, and eat them. But I knew if I did that, I would not have him to torture or be tortured by him. I pissed and shit all him, all on him in his mouth, eyes, ears. He did to me. I know we ate 10 pounds of peanut butter and drank several gallons of cider between us in the five weeks I had him. So I guess it's a little over a month. All things have an end. This is the most ridiculous sexual nonsense I've ever read about. I keep thinking about the poor police officer who had to write all this down. Right, Fish is bragging to this guy back in 1935 before the internet had completely sexually desensitized every adult that he and Thomas ate 10 pounds of Thomas's shit. In between sadistic sexual beatings. Can you imagine hearing all that? If the most sexually graphic thing you'd ever heard about before was a buddy getting a blowjob by some girl when they weren't married. Like I, like I know not everyone was that innocent back then, but I bet a lot of people were. I like to picture some Don Knotts, Barney Fife type character. Just, oh, gee, Andy. Oh, this is a whole lot of information. Just hearing all this for those, for the hundred of you who got that Barney Fife reference. And Sheriff Fife was not done writing down the insanity. <laughs> he keeps going. My job was finished and I could not afford to keep him. Realizing that I must go home, he did not want to be, uh, he did not want to put them on, but opened my pants. So, sorry, some of the stuff I tried to correct is the way he wrote it is a little confusing, but he, he took out my dick and sucked me off. That part I get. Then I was tempted. I tied him up again, playing with his dicky until it got stiff. Then I took the knife and sliced off half of it. I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me. The blood gushed in a stream. At first, I intended to kill him, cut up the body and take it home. Oh, wow. Really hoping that everyone listening for sure thinks Fish is taking things too far now. He just cut half this guy's dick off. Pretty sure even in the most hardcore BDSM circles, rule number one is don't cut off dicks. But the weather was hot and I knew I had no ice. It would stink and betray me. 
So I poured cold water over his dicky, then slowly poured the rest of the peroxide in the open wound. Then I took the rest of the Vaseline in a clean handkerchief and I bound him up. I untied him, put his clothes on the chair by the side of the bed, gave him $10, kissed him goodbye. <laughs> what the hell? He cuts half this guy's dick off, cleans it up with some peroxide, and he gives him 10 bucks, and then just gives him a kiss and hits the road. Sorry about the dick, Whittlin' Thomas, my boy. I'll be the first to admit I was a real dingbat. I took our shindig too far. Should have stopped with the peanut butter. Should have stopped with the cider. I'm sure you'll heal up in time and we'll uh, put what's left of that love stump to good use. <laughs> well, I gotta beat it now. Getting cabin fever, spanking and drinking piss in this foul bond day after day with the bonehead like you. You're a sweet simp, and I wish you the best of luck, kid. Lay off the cider and take care of what's left of yourself. Good day now. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, as I'm leaving, this, this whole thing reminds me of a song. Well, you know it's the best when the poop hits. Your chest, that's how I come. I'll shoot my seed when your ass starts to bleed. That's how I come. That's how I come. Ah, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and then, uh, you know, and then, he, then he's out of there. And then, and then, and then he, <laughs> so ridiculous. And then he told the uh, police officer, after all that, he leaves. He says, I took first train I could to get back home. Never heard what became of him or tried to find out. God delivered Jacob and his people out of the hands of their enemies. He smote the Egyptians and their hinder pots. His command is spare, not the rod. His holy book says, purge thyself with sin. With the rod, the Jews stripped and whipped Jesus with switches before they crucified him. Who am I, most unworthy of sinners, that I should not be stripped and whipped? Abraham Abraham offered up his own son as a sacrifice to Almighty God. Another twist I did not expect. Did not expect, after all of that, for him to, to end, uh, you know, his little dissertation on what he did with some scripture. Now, just anywho, spare the rod and spoil the child. That's what the good book says. We had a golden rule, good time. I did unto Thomas what I would have him do unto me. And did he ever do un- things unto me? Heavens to Betsy, I'm as hard as a Buick Roadster. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so what exactly am I in trouble for anyway? January of 1917, Fish's wife, Anna Mary, elopes with a handyman named John Straub, who is renting a room in their home, and she abandons Fish and their six children. Surprised it took her this long. One can only imagine what he has been asking her to do in the bedroom. No, Albert, for the last time, I'm not going to let you tie me up again. The last time I did, you shit my mouth and cut off one of my nibbles. Fool me once, Albert. Fool me once. A few weeks later, Anna returns, complaining that Straub has been beating her, and Fish, at the urging of their children, takes her back but she's not really back. She just needs a place to stay. And then just days after returning, Mrs. Fish smuggles her lover, Straub, back into the house, hiding him in the basement. When Fish finds out, he kicks them both out, and then they later return to steal all of the family's furniture before leaving again and never coming back. How sad for their kids that Albert Fish is the most stable and reliable parent. Insanely violent pervert, but at least he doesn't abandon them. Anna's betrayal seems to trigger an escalation of madness in Albert that will last until his final arrest. On one occasion, shortly after his wife left, Bertie spent an entire evening lying on the floor wrapped up in the carpet, asked why he was doing it. Fish explained to one of his children he had been instructed to do so by John the Baptist. Another time, his kids catch him climbing a nearby hill and watch him stand up and shout at a full moon over and over, I am Christ! I am Christ! So totally stable, not cracking up in the slightest. Fish's episodes of self-harm also seem to intensify after his wife leaves. His children began coming home and finding their dad literally beating himself bloody with one of his nail-studded paddles. Occasionally, he would even encourage his kids to beat him as he would crouch on all fours on the floor. 
So, you know, normal dad shit. Around this time, Albert starts to, st- <laughs> starts to stuff his anal cavity with wads of cotton, soaked in alcohol, and setting his insides on fire. Hopefully, he was not asking his kids to light the match on those occasions. Albert Jr., come on in here, my boy. Father just needs your help for a second, my sweet lad. Just give me one good light, and then you can skedaddle off with your friends to the general store and buy some root beer barrels while you pop jigs around trying to snuff out a backdoor forest fire. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Albert also got, <laughs> when you light your butthole, that's when you feel at home, that's when I come. This fucking lunatic. Albert also got into what was possibly an even more extreme form of self-mutilation around this time. He started inserting sewing needles into his body, like all the way in, like straight in. And he would shove most of them into his taint. Mm-hmm. No big whoops. Just a stressed out single dad blown off a little steam by shoving long metal needles oh, uh, behind his balls in, into his, his fucking pelvic region. He, he actually tried to uh, insert them directly into his testicles, but said later that the pain was too intense. Even for a seasoned masochist like him. Later in life, he'd have his pelvic region x-rayed and there were like 30 big needles inside of him. You can find pics online. It's absurd. Literally walking around on pins and needles. After Some of them had been there so long, they were starting to deteriorate. After Anna leaves, Albert starts traveling around the country looking for work, sending enough money back home to keep his kids fed. He would later claim to have raped over 100 children during his travels, saying that most were boys under the age of six, and that he molested, as I mentioned earlier, over 400 kids. Later claimed to, uh, to a court-appointed psychiatrist to have worked in 13 states between New York and Montana and to have had, you know, assaulted kids in every state. How much of this is true is up for debate. He definitely did molest and hurt and murder children. He'd be convicted, but he's also batshit crazy, so it's hard to take his information as being uh, 100% reliable. Fish told the same psychiatrist that he felt driven to torment and kill children partially by God. Maybe that's when someone should for sure kill themselves, when they start raping and molesting kids in the name of God. Sometimes Fish would gag the kids, tie them up, beat them, although he preferred, he preferred not to gag them because he liked to hear their cries because he was basically a demon in human flesh. He also felt that he was ordered by God to castrate little boys, saying at one point, I had sort of an idea through Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. It always seemed to me that I had to offer a child for sacrifice to purge myself of iniquities, sins, and abominations in the sight of God. Such a Sodom and Gomorrah. This guy was clearly extremely mentally ill, right? He had to be. How else can someone think that the only way to purge themselves of sin, sins undoubtedly based around sex with kids, is to cut another kid's uh, dick or balls off? In 1919, 49-year-old Fish may have committed his first actual murder, uh, even though the, the Thomas Kedden, some people think that after all of that, he probably died. Uh, but he reportedly stabbed and killed a mentally challenged boy in the Georgetown area of Washington, D.C. Numerous sources mentioned his killing. None that I can find provide details outside of what I just told you. And Fish would never confess to this particular crime. On July 11th, 1924, so just uh, five years later, an eight-year-old girl narrowly avoids sexual torture and possible murder herself when she encounters 53-year-old Fish. Keel's eight-year-old daughter, Beatrice Keel, was approached by an elderly stranger with a gray mustache who offered her a nickel if she would go into the woods with him to pick wild rhubarb. Uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't reference who this Keel was before, but yeah, I'll talk about that in a second. So yeah, eight-year-old Beatrice Keel. Um, man, I hope if anyone makes a similar offer to one of my kids, I have the courage and strength to break their fucking jaws. No adult who approaches a kid to go off and do something alone with them without first running it by a parent or a guardian first is anything other than a fucking creep. Fortunately for little Beatrice, her mom saw Fish approach through the kitchen window and she went outside to confront Fish who promptly fled. 
Later that night, Beatrice's father, here we go, uh, Hans Kiel, found the old man sleeping in his Staten Island barn back when Staten Island was actually full of uh, farms and barns, ran him off. Dude had a lot of self-control to keep himself from kicking that piece of shit to death. And, uh, and I keep saying this guy was fish because even though he was never caught for this crime, years later when Albert gets caught for murdering another little girl, Hans and his wife are certain that the man they chased away was Albert Fish. Also, to, infurther, to further incriminate Fish here, three days after the Keel incident, eight-year-old Francis McDonald would be for sure murdered less than a mile away by Albert. On July 14th, 1924, little eight-year-old Francis McDonald was playing on his front, front porch in Long Island, New York, while his mother sat close by nursing his sister. She, she noticed a creepy dude mumbling to himself while clenching and unclenching his fists. Several hours later, a witness saw a man of the same description. A man witnessed later would say it was Albert Fish, 54, watching Francis playing ball with four other boys. Fish called Francis over while the other boys continued to play, and moments later, Francis and the old man were gone, and Francis would never be seen again alive. Francis' father, Arthur McDonald, was a police officer and pulled all hands on deck within the forest to try and find his son. They searched late into the evening, couldn't find him. Francis' body was found the next morning by three volunteer Boy Scouts. His body lay a few hundred yards into the woods, not quite concealed under a pile of leaves and broken branches. Francis had been severely beaten, then strangled to death with his own suspenders, which had been pulled so tightly around his neck they'd cut into his flesh and drawn blood. The boy's shorts and underwear had been violently ripped from his body, leaving him naked from the waist down, clearly the victim of sexual assault. Most of his body was covered in severe lacerations. Most of the flesh on his left hamstring was gone. Based on what we'll learn later about fish, there's a good chance that part of that kid's body was taken home by fish to be eaten. The following day, 250 plainclothes New York police officers scoured Long Island looking for the boy's killer. It was a front page news. They knocked on doors, interviewed basically everyone from Arthur's neighborhood and found no one. Autopsy reports showed that McDonald had raisins in his stomach, eaten shortly before his death, Fish lured him away from his friends with this treat. When Fish later confessed to McDonald's murder, he said that he also intended to castrate him, but heard someone coming, so he's unable to complete that goal. On February 11th, 1927, another child is murdered by now 56-year-old Albert Fish. He would confess to this murder months before his eventual execution. On that February day, four-year-old Billy Gaffney disappeared in Brooklyn. Witnesses saw Billy hopping on a nearby trolley with an older man fitting Fish's description that evening. After Fish's arrest, years later, the trolley's conductor, Anthony Barone, and the trolley driver, driver Joseph Meehan, both recalled seeing Billy with an old man fitting Fish's, uh, Fish's description, and they remembered Billy crying throughout the journey. After seeing Fish's picture in the paper, Meehan in particular was positive that Fish was the man he'd seen with Billy. Poor Billy Gaffney had just turned four when he was taken. His little best friend, Billy Beaton, another Billy, was only three years old the late winter afternoon when Fish disappeared or appeared, and then Billy disappeared. It was a Friday, and the boys were playing in the corridor of the Brooklyn tenement where their families lived as neighbors. Another boy, 12-year-old Johnny McNiff, came out for a short while and joined in some little game they were playing. And then Johnny's younger sister, who was babysitting, started crying. He went inside to check on her, and when he returned a couple minutes later, the two little boys were gone. When Billy Beaton's father popped out from his apartment a moment later, he asked, where's Billy? And Johnny told him he didn't know. Perhaps they went to the Gaffney's, he offered. The two ran over to the Gaffney apartment, but the boys weren't there. Billy's dad then raced out, looked around the block, uh, ran around the block, you know, no, nothing. Then he raced up towards the roof of the apartment building. When he got to the top floor, Mr. Beaton thankfully spotted his son, Billy, standing by the ladder that led to the roof. He grabbed his Billy, asked him, where were you? And little Billy said, we were on the roof. 
Where's Billy Gaffney? Beaton's father asked. Is he still up there? Then the little boy shook his head, no. And when his dad asked, where is he then? The little Billy told him, the boogie, uh, excuse me, the boogeyman took him. How creepy is that and how absolutely accurate. Albert Fish was truly the boogeyman. His boogeyman nickname likely originated with the Billy Gaffney killing, but was spread around the nation via an extremely popular comic book released at the time based, uh, uh, you know, there was a villain in this comic book based on Albert Fish. And this comic was uh, was Pootie and Juju. That's right. The, the May 1917 edition of Pootie and Juju, issue number 46, was titled, Watch out, Juju, the boogeyman's under your bed. This incredibly popular issue sold over 80 bajillion copies in the first week of its release. It's the most popular comic book of all time in American history. In this issue, Pootie becomes, uh, becomes convinced that someone has been eating his poop before he can flush it. And when he tries to sleep at night, he keeps hearing an old man you know, it's just like a voice whisper stuff like, be a good sport, Pootie, and shoot a little peanut butter out of your booty for old Uncle Fish. Come on, Pootie, help old birdie fire in the butthole, straighten out his monkey and grab a paddle. Hit that sweet ham until it's swollen bloody. Be a good sport now. Juju told Pootie he was dreaming. And then after a few more nights of whispers, the noise has stopped. Pootie's poo returns. And so Pootie goes into Juju's room to tell him the good news, only to see fish under Juju's bed, licking what looks like shit off his lips. He yells, Juju, the boogeyman, he's under your bed now. And Juju, irritated that Pootie had awoken him, started to yell, ah, oh, put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. But then he saw fish and jumped as fish said, why don't you two be a couple of cat's pajamas babies and push some pins into my peepees? Grab that whip and punish my naughty little monkey. Don't be a couple of chumps. Drop off some peanut butter clumps and old fishy sweet wing. Make him lick himself clean. We all know the dirty bird gets the worm. And then Juju knocked fish out cold with a hammer right as Pootie grabbed a Louisville slugger. Juju yelled, too little, too little, Pootie, as Pootie caved in an already unconscious fish's head. Pootie looked and Juju said, not, not too little, Juju, just enough to say bye-bye to the boogeyman. That's what a real good sport does. And then they laughed and laughed and laughed as blood poured from fish's skull, a monster who died doing what he loved, scaring people while being beaten. And that new listener was recurring characters, Pootie and Juju, if you are thoroughly fucking confused. There's a comic book that shows up time from time to here. Uh, okay, <laughs> back to today's story. Oh, gotta lighten it up. Gotta lighten it up with some silliness from time to time. This stuff is just ridiculous. Also, sometime around 1917 or 1918, Fish begins writing some of the weirdest, I say some of the weirdest letters, the weirdest letters I've ever read. Fish loved to write obscene letters. Of course he did. Usually he'd find his targets for these disgusting letters through matrimonial agencies. When that was a thing, just like dudes essentially order Russian brides now and brides from other countries full of women desperately trying to get out of those countries. Dudes uh, used to find women in the U.S. in need of a man's income or just desperate to avoid the stigma of being an old maid or desperate to have kids. In the early 20th century, some equivalent of Tinder or some other hookup app would have been, uh, you know, those would have been socially unacceptable like Tinder, you know, the other things. But you could advertise for, for matrimony. You just couldn't advertise for booty calls. So Fish would get the mailing address of random women, either through one of these agencies or he'd find women in need of, of work or hoping for marriage or uh, he, he liked to find like landladies looking to rent out rooms and various classified ads in the newspaper. Uh, and in his letters to these women, Fish would often present himself as a successful Hollywood producer looking for a place to board his teenage son. He would typically present his fictitious son uh, as a well-built but mentally handicapped young man in need of constant discipline. Here comes the sadomasochism. Fish would go on to describe exactly how and how often 
He expected this fictitious boy to be beaten. If the landlady was agreeable, and many were because he would offer the promise of large sums of money to whoever would do this, Fishwood would follow up with another letter, and then another, and another, and another, becoming more graphic and depraved every time. Eventually, he'd introduce his own dark desires into the deal, suggesting that he would like to drink the woman's urine, eat her shit, be savagely beaten by her, all that kind of stuff. Before we dig into some of these letters, let's take a quick sponsor break. Time Suck is brought to you today by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data. Place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as 100 Most Popular with Robinhood. You can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks. Track your favorite companies. Get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving TimeSuckers a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up today at timesuck.robinhood.com. Do it today. Timesuck.robinhood.com. Link in the episode description. Sponsor button on the TimeSuck website and app. Now for some tidbits from some of Fish's creepy-ass letters. Here's an expert from one of his letters sent to some poor woman he'd contacted via a classified ad in 1929. He says, I wish you could see me now. I am sitting in a chair naked. The pain is across my back, just over from my behind. When you strip me naked, you will see a most perfect form. Yours, your sweet honey of my heart. I can taste your sweet piss, your sweet shit. You must pee pee in a glass, and I shall drink every drop of it as you watch me. Tell me when you want to do number two. I will take you over my knees, pull up your clothes, take down your drawers, and hold my mouth to your sweet honey fat ass and eat your sweet peanut butter as it comes out fresh and hot. That's how they do it in Hollywood. <laughs> That's what he wrote. That's how they do it in Hollywood, you see? Listen, doll, I'm a big shot, I'm a big shot Hollywood producer. Uh, did you see the cameraman with Buster Keaton? My picture. And do you know how that cake eater became a big showbiz star, you goofy gal? Well, he dropped a hot deuce of peanut butter in Papa's pie hole. Let me munch on that sweet sauce when it was still steaming. Fresh out of his back alley oven. That's showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood. <laughs> and then Albert continues talking about his made-up son, Bobby. Bobby does not wet or muss his clothes with a bit. He will tell you when he has to use the toilet, number one and number two. For number one, his pants must be unbuttoned at the crotch and his monkey taken out. His hands and drawers are all made with a drop seat. All you have to do is loose three buttons in the back and down they come. Saves a lot of undressing. Handy when you want to spank him. Just drop the seat of his pants and drawers. You don't have to strip him except at night for bed. Or to give him a bath or a switching. The doctor says three or four good spankings a day on his bare behind will do him good as he is nice and fat in that spot. It will be an aid to him. When he don't mind you, you must strip him and use the cat nine tails. Say you won't hesitate to use the paddle or cat of nine tails on him when he needs it. The doctor. He writes, he writes that a doctor has prescribed all of this. Listen, you silly dame. Bobby's doctor insists that he have his nice and fat bare bottom spanked with a cat of nine three or four times a day. No more, no less. No need to swat his monkey. Our doctor has not advised any sort of monkey business at this time. Stay tuned for more legitimate medical information. I have to get back to my talkie right now. I'm working on the coconuts with the Marx Brothers. Why, Mary Eaton is minutes away from cleaning me up with a golden shower and shitting on my chest. That's showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood, my lass. <laughs> oh, my God. 
In the fall of 1934, 64-year-old Fish really goes back and forth to some poor lady named Miss Shaw. <laughs> Dude loved the long con. He was dedicated to this game. Uh, before his letters with Miss Shaw, he sneaks in a very quick marriage, I want to mention. On February 6, 1930, 59-year-old Fish marries 46-year-old Mrs. Estella Wilcox in Waterloo, New York. Fish and Wilcox met through a matrimonial agency, and they remained married <laughs> for 10 days. During that short period of time, he plays some very strange games with his stepchildren that rightfully creep her the fuck out. <laughs> One game was called Buck Buck, How Many Hands Up? I'm sure you've played it at least once. It consisted of fish dressing in just a tiny pair of brown underwear while closing his eyes. And then he'd have the kids, and then he would guess how many uh, fingers the kids were holding in the air. If he guessed wrong, which he normally did, probably because he was cheating, uh, the kids would have to use a paintbrush to spank their new stepdad's ass with the difference. Like if he guessed three and they were holding up nine, they'd have to spank him six times. Yeah, I, I get it. Sounds normal. Some families play Monopoly. Some families play Buck Buck. How many hands up? Uh, <laughs> uh, Joe Paisley, Reverend Dr. Joe, he asked to play Buck Buck. How many hands up? At least once, once a week here in the Suck Dungeon. Uh, once a month, he just breaks out in a song. Just, hello, my darling. Hello, my baby. Take a shit of my chest. Uh, another game fish would play was called sack of potatoes over in this game, a shirtless fish rules or rules. You gotta take your shirt off for this game would throw the kids over his shoulder and they would slide down his back and they were supposed to dig their nails as far as they could into his bare flesh as one does when you play sack of potatoes. The third game fish liked to play with these kids. Uh, he introduced on day three of his marriage. It was called how many needles can you shove under your fingernails? Pretty self-explanatory. The kids didn't feel like playing. So Fish would just play this one by himself until his hands were covered in blood. And for some reason, these games fucking weirded out his new wife. And she, she bolted. I can only imagine what games he was asking her to play privately. Oh, come on. Don't be so last. It's, it's a typical showbiz stuff. It's all harmless fun. Uh, I'm sorry if I didn't ask you if it was okay to stick kerosene cotton balls in your bottom. Of course, I don't think you look like a horse. That's not why I asked you at all. Just If you could just neigh. If you could just neigh, will I light your butthole on fire? Now on to those 1934 Miss Shaw letters. <laughs> He's, here's his first letter. Dated September 30th, 1934. He, build, he builds these up. He builds these ones up a little slower. He writes, My dear Miss Shaw, I am a widower with a son of 19 who is a semi-invalid. I am a director in the movies and must be back in Hollywood, California by October 15th. Before, I don't know why that's so funny to me, the Hollywood details. Uh, just typical showbiz stuff. Uh, before I go, I wish uh, to see him placed in a competent hand, uh, in the competent hands in a good private home, one that does not look or smell like a hospital or institution. I am well able and quite willing to pay a good price for Bobby's care, but my instructions must be carried out. Here is the case. Win five, he fell down the cellar stairs, sustained a brain concussion. He's never been really normal since. Though going on 20, good looking and well built, fully developed, he has the mentality of the age of when he fell. Every part of his body has grown but the brain. He is harmless and just so easy to spank or switch as a child of five. When 12, he had an attack of infantile paralysis. He can walk, run, jump, get in and get out of the bathtub alone. No lifting to do or wheelchair to push. He has very little use of his hands or arms. Has to be washed, dressed, undressed, given a bath. Rubbed all over daily with alcohol and assisted in the toilet. What? <laughs> Rubbed all over daily with alcohol? He gets cross and cranky at times. Don't always mind. I am trying out a European treatment in such cases. Professor Cairo of Vienna, Austria recommends it. He says when he gets a spell, he must be whipped. They are having great success over there in cases like it. So you see, as his own father, I would sooner have him whipped 
anyhow, than have him lose his reason entirely. Should you take him charge on the first occasion he shows temper, spank him soundly, as you would a small boy. Don't hesitate to use the cat of nine tails on his bare behind when necessary. I love how he's trying to manipulate this poor woman. Don't feel guilty for one moment, dear Ms. Shaw. Your whipping this ever-loving shit out of my sweet handicapped boy is the one thing standing between him and certain further men mental deterioration. You'll be doing God's work, my dear. Why, recently in Vienna, one dear simp was drooling in the corner when first brought to Professor Cairo. And after a year of so much whipping and spanking and beatings, he now teaches advanced mathematics at the University of Budapest. Ain't that the cat's meow? Uh, then Albert continues, if interested, state your terms and when you can receive him. He is now in Philadelphia in charge of a colored woman I have known 25 years. She says whipping is the, be <laughs> is the best medicine she has ever used. I will call on you. Sincerely yours, Robert E. Hayden. Oh, well, as crazy as this all sounds, it was the 30s and a lot of people were struggling financially uh, during the Great Depression. And they also didn't know what real medical treatment looks like. Like if you're wondering why anyone would entertain this stuff. I mean, at this time, actual doctors are still giving people in-home lobotomies with fucking ice picks. Good old Dr. Ice Pick McBrainstabber. And with this context in mind, Ms. Shaw is interested in Albert's offer. We don't have her letters, but we do have Albert's side of this entire correspondence. His next letter to Ms. Shaw is dated October 2nd, 1934. My dear Ms. Shaw, just got home and found your letter. I'm so glad you are interested. Before I call on you, will you kindly advise me? Are you a widow? And if so, would you consider another marriage? That's, that's fast. Will the presence of your daughter in your own home prevent you from taking care of my son. You know there are some women who think it immodest to strip a boy naked who is over 10 years old unless he is their own son. I know you are not ashamed to strip, bathe, rub, spank, and switch my son, or you would not have answered my letter. However, I shall feel much more at ease if you will say you are not in your next letter. Would phone, but don't hear very well. We'll call you as soon as I get your answer. Yours very truly, R.E. Hayden. And it just keeps getting weirder. The lengths he goes to find someone to fulfill his very specific sexual desires is hilarious to me. Uh, Ms. Shaw, not put off by this letter, as referenced in the third letter, dated October 4th, 1934. My dear Ms. Shaw, just got your very nice letter. I am much pleased to know you are not one bit ashamed to strip Bobby naked and bathe him. I'm also glad you spoke to your daughter and she is willing to aid you in taking care of him. There is no reason why either of you should be. You know times have changed and so have people. What in times past was considered immodest is now very commonplace. Then again, look at what young girls training to become nurses see and touch in hospitals. Bear in mind, that it is for Bobby's own good that he is to be whipped. So don't let your heart stay your hand. Do you know that I feel that in part I am to blame for the condition Bobby is in? My conscience says that for being careless, I should also be whipped. In the same manner and place, you will whip Bobby. Someday I will hope you I hope you will be able to accommodate me. Oh yeah, here we go. Here's where he starts to make his pivot. Right? You and your daughter are already helping my mentally handicapped son by beating the shit out of him. So why not spread more joy around and throw a few lashings my way? It's, it's how they do it in Hollywood. It's showbiz. Uh, Albert finishes this letter writing, I would give a nice new $100 bill for a good old-fashioned spanking and a taste of the switch. Once again, there is a place on 42th Street called Fleischman's Baths where naked men are rubbed all over by women. White, black, Chinese. Most women will get a kick out of spanking a naked man. But I prefer some privacy in a home. I am a 33-degree mason and will be busy the next two days. Oh, he's, you know, he's legit. He's fucking not a weird mason, just normal. How about Sunday afternoon or night? Let your daughter read this letter. I am a man of the world, and she can get knowledge of the world through, <laughs> through it. What? I feel that we can be fast friends. Sincerely, Robert E. Hayden. Clearly angling for the daughter now as well. Dude would love for a mom-daughter combo. Just together, whipping him silly. Tag team shitting on his creepy face. 
Based on the next letter, none of this is too much still for Ms. Shaw. Sunday, October 7th, 1934, he writes again, My dear Ms. Shaw, I have been called to Philadelphia on some very important business. While there, I shall make arrangements to have Bobby transferred on here and will then turn him over to you and your daughter for his treatment when you are ready for him. I have paid for his board and care up to October 15th. You see, I am never sure just where I will be until December 31st when my contract expires. I have always made it a custom to pay several weeks in advance. Now, in your letters, you have made no mention of your financial condition. You may be short of funds. If you are, do not hesitate to say so. You can give me your answer through Mr. Pell, the bearer of this, and I will then advance you as much as you may require. Mr. James W. Pell is a friend and ward of mine. He has been declared incompetent, and I have $32,500 of his money in a trust. He had a nervous breakdown and was in a nearby sanitarium for 21 weeks at $100 a week. He is without a living relation, and I don't see why you can't take him and earn some of his money as well. Two of his sons were blown to pieces in the war. At times, he imagines he is a boy at school, has been naughty, and must be spanked. (laughs) Everyone needs to be spanked. Dr. Lamb said to humor him, let him be a boy all over again and spank him. If he gets short of breath and is subject to fits when in, uh, when in water, keep spanking. Uh, so, so yeah, so he just, uh, and then at the end of it, he just goes, uh, he will say, teacher, whip me. I shall not leave for Philadelphia until Jimmy returns with your answer. Hope someday you will call me by my first name. How about my spanking? Do I get it? Oh, how I hope. Sincerely, Robert E. Hayden. So fucking, I mean, I think it's easy to see what he's doing here. There's no Bobby. There's no Robert Hayden. There's no Jimmy Pell. It's all Albert Fish. He just wants, he just wants to get Miss Shaw to a mental place where she will spank anyone who comes to her house for whatever reason, if they, and think it's somehow following medical advice. Think that he's, she's helping a little, you know, somebody in some, some way, even if it's some old guy who wants to pretend to be a boy. And also this reminds me of the nun in the orphanage. Clearly he's reliving that on some level. My God, maybe that orphanage really did ruin him. Uh, And clearly she considers doing all of this based on the next letter, dated October 8th. My dear Miss Shaw, I have a friend of mine I had a friend of mine drive Mr. Pell or Jimmy to Little Neck. They stopped at Little Neck Parkway, asked the policeman where your street was. They spent nearly an hour walking up one street and down another. It was so dark they could not see the numbers. Some one told them of a Mr. Chas Shaw, an electrical engineer, and a Dr. Shaw, but Jimmy got tired out. When I returned home, I found him all in. He had the other letters with him and was all set for a good old-fashioned spanking from both of you. <laughs> a good old-fashioned spanking. They were both more than ready for you two dames to dish out some wholesome family bare-bottom fun. It would have been the bee's knees. Then he writes, This is, of course, when the mister is not at home. You can arrange that. I shall be in Philadelphia for a day or two. May go to Washington, D.C. before I return. Meanwhile, you can write me, Bellevue, Stratford, Pa, and if you, uh, if you are ready for Jimmy, write him at the same address in New York City. I am very sincerely yours, Robert Hayden. P.S. In 1928, Mr. Pell was operated on for a hernia. When you have him stripped... You will see the mark of the incision. Look on his left groin, from his penis to his hip bone. He was prepared for another operation 10 days ago, all hair shaved off. That is why he looks like a pitched chicken. He was found to have a bad heart, so it was called off. When you or your girl spank him, don't use your hand. If you have not a paddle, use the back of a hairbrush or get a few switches. There must be plenty of them near your home. What the fuck is this madman talking about now? Listen, doll, Pell's got a bad ticker, and his monkey has been cut from tip to hip, so I implore you, for the sake of Pelly's health, please whip him with a switch as hard as you would if he were a dirty goon trying to steal your virtue. Pretend you are but a, but a cutting-edge cutting edge European doctor saving some man's life, because this is exactly what you will be doing. Uh, Fish continues, I know Jimmy would give you a $100 bill for a good sound spanking, so I shall take it out of his money for you. So spank, spank, spank. Harry K. Thaw gave $100 bills for girls for a spanking. 
<laughs> Only he done the spanking on the girls bare behinds. He met them at the stage door. Showbiz, typical Hollywood stuff. Took them to his room at the Astor House, stripped them naked, turned them over his knee, used a paddle. Many of them came two or three times a week to be spanked and get that $100. Show me a girl who is nice and has some modesty, but not too much. It don't pay your rent or taxes or buy the baby shoes. Out in Hollywood, Laura LaPlante came in my office dressed in her birthday suit and sat in my lap. <laughs> we have an old Ro- Ro- Romani gypsy woman who tells all the girls that if they can catch a man naked in his home, whip his bear behind with switches and then kiss him, she will surely marry him. Now they all carry switches. It just keeps getting more ludicrous. Laura LaPlante was a huge silent film star, by the way, appeared in over 60 films during the 20s. And he is telling this woman who has to be a little crazy herself to still be entertaining any of this. This Laura, uh, she, or this uh, uh, Ms. Shaw, he's telling her that Laura, this big star, just walked into his office, tried to catch him in the nude, try, and, and then wanted to whip his bare ass based on the insane advice of some mysterious gypsy woman. I keep imagining Ms. Shaw reading all this shit and somehow, in some way, taking it seriously. Just, huh? Really? Laura LaPlante? Well, I guess if Miss LaPlante is spanking old men on switches, I, I, I certainly shouldn't feel ashamed to do so as well. I, I guess I'm just being silly worrying about this. All. Albert then finishes the letter with, Jimmy has a habit of painting his behind red or in gold. When you strip him, you, <laughs> you will see. I have told him just what to expect at your home. He is pretty tough. Don't be shy or slow in laying it on his behind. Limber up your arms for Bobby and his daddy, Robert. Fuck. After all this, Miss Shaw's still not out. <laughs> Nothing too crazy. Just a guy painting his bottom gold who needs to be viciously beaten. She is going to bail before long, but not yet. Albert sends uh, another letter on October 24th, 1934. Uh, My dear Miss Shaw, you have struck the nail on the head at last. You've been too modest. Take a hundred women, give each the same chance I gave you. Ninety-nine of them would have jumped at it. I doubt it. Uh, Bobby is still in Philadelphia in the charge of the same colored woman. I am paying her $50 a week. It is not a question of price, but service. He seems to like colored people, and I have found that a colored woman and girl enjoy the job of spanking and switching a naked white boy or man. <laughs> Especially it is so with the girls, regardless as to their age or size. There are many things about Bobby of which I have never written, not because of modesty, but because I well know you would find out. I may as well speak of it now. He has a strong tendency to play with himself, masturbation, that I have been advised to have him altered or sterilized. Now, as to Mr. Pell or Jimmy, he is not a bit loony. His hobby is to be whipped, whipped, whipped. I just want you to try your hands. I just want you to tire your hands out on his bare behind, just as a sample of what Bobby would get. I love when he writes the sentence, he is not a bit loony. He's not a bit loony, Miss Shaw. He's just as right as the rain. In fact, we showbiz types like to say, Jimmy's a real chic in the sack. We don't take no hubbub off any prudes or saps. He'd be plum giddy to take a not loony at all whipping from a bear cat looking like yourself. It's showbiz. It's how we do it in Hollywood. And then Albert writes, he could come to your home and be stripped well spanked. So much fucking spanking talk. My God. Jesus, dude. Put on his clothes and return him to me. He is able to do so. <laughs> now, if the mister is at home in the evening, it would embarrass both of you. But it can be done in the daytime, any hour you say. Take him to the house. Go to his bare behind with a will. He's a fucking one-trick pony. Now, my dear, I, I think I deserve the cane. Don't you think so? I have the money to pay for it, and I'm not stingy. So any hour and day you say for Jimmy, Daddy, later on, now you just drop modesty and speak plain, Robert. P.S. I can almost hear the smacks on Bobby's bare behind as those colored girls spank him. Your turn next. <laughs> I, like how there's, I like how there's no more pretense of medical treatment in this letter. 
He doesn't say anything overtly like sexual, like how this will make him come or turn him on, but he's no longer pretending this is medical treatment. He continues his non-medical spanking talk, clearly moving towards the sexual realm in his next letter dated October 29th, only five uh, days later. They're writing back and forth quickly. Miss Shaw probably just wants to spank these fuckers silly now for making her wait so long for her money. It's been four weeks of nonsensical back and forth. October 29th, my dear Miss Shaw, <laughs> just now I'm so busy, I scarcely got time to really enjoy a good meal and wish you had room for the daddy as well as for the son. I know I would enjoy some good home cooking with the prospects of a good spanking now and then thrown in. <laughs> I have sort of an idea that you and the mister did not pull so well together. I would just love to give you a royal good time and I'm capable of doing it without his knowing it. When I wrote to you last of spanking Jimmy, he had just been shaved for an operation and looked like a pig chicken. Now the hair is beginning to grow again. He has a strange habit of putting on his underwear backwards. So you will no doubt find it that way when you strip him. Both of you warm his behind until it is good and red all over. He will come down on the bus from Flushing and have a letter from me to his hand so you know him. Black coat, gray fedora. Have your daughter meet him. Once you have him in your home, in your home upstairs, I am sure both of you know what to do. How about Sunday between 2 and 4 p.m.? Have you a nice heavy paddle? Have a nice cat nine tails? You see, there are three behinds to be spanked and switched, so don't be bashful. Don't be modest, either of you. Just say, yes, Robert. Dear X, if you, if you want X, you shall get a plenty until one hear from you. Bye-bye, Robert Triple X. P.S. If Jimmy kicks or puts his hands in the way when you spank him, tie his hands. And then finally, on November 9th, Albert pushes Miss Shaw too far. He writes, my dearest, darling, sweetest little girly Grace. Just got your letter calling me, dear Robert. Dear honey heart of mine, you have captured me. I am your slave and everything I have is yours. Prick, balls, ass, all the money you want. If you're my own sweet wife, you would not be afraid of me. All girly of my heart, I would love you. And how? Hugs, kisses, squeeze you, spank you, and then kiss you just where I spanked. Yes, six weeks of letters to build up to the inevitable poop-eating conclusion. He writes, your nice, pretty, fat, sweet ass. You won't need toilet paper to wipe your sweet, pretty, fat ass. I shall eat all of it. Then lick your sweet ass clean with my tongue. This last letter, unbeknownst to Albert, was sent by Ms. Grace Shaw, a middle-aged housewife from Queens, under the direction of the police. They had asked her to send it. In late October, Fish, a.k.a. Jimmy Pell, had shown up, you know, as we, he wrote about, to Ms. Shaw's home, bearing a letter of introduction from, other, from the other Fish, alias Robert Hayden. Mrs. Shaw refused to administer the beating Fish requested, saying that based on his age and frail physique, she was afraid she might kill him. Grace Shaw finally also realized she'd been the victim of a scam and gathered up all the letters Fish had sent her, went to the police a short time later. A postal inspector uh, named Kemper was assigned to this obscenity case, and he encouraged Grace to continue to write Fish in order to lure him out. Under Kemper's instructions, she added a tone of intimacy to the last letter. When Albert asked her if he could lick shit off her ass, Grace wanted out, but Kemper convinced her to write one more letter, encouraging Hayden to visit her at the home. Fish wrote back, agreeing to the rendezvous, but then never showed up. Maybe he spotted the police nearby waiting to ambush him. Wow, crazy, right? All that weird letter writing shit. Almost exactly a month after not catching Fish for writing dirty letters to Ms. Shaw, Albert Fish would be caught by police for writing a far nastier letter, a letter to the parents of a young girl he'd kidnapped, killed, and eaten, Grace Budd. That victim would, uh, the victim that would finally send this piece of shit to the, to the electric chair. We'll look at that letter right after we jump back in time for a moment and look at Grace's tragic murder. And we'll look at that murder right after a final word from our Lisa sponsor. Uh, Lisa has been a huge supporter of Time Suck. And I, and I hope you become a huge supporter of Lisa mattresses. Lisa believes that a bed is more than just a place to sleep. It's a place for relaxation and rest. 
And they believe that everybody has the right to rest except Albert Fish. They are for sure glad he was never able to lay his creepy ass down on a Lisa mattress and do God knows what with his peanut butter. Lisa makes two awesome mattresses plus accessories and bases to give your body the deep rest it needs. The all foam Lisa mattress is new and improved featuring cooling LSA 200 foam for enhanced pressure relief for side sleepers. Their Sapiro hybrid mattress is the perfect combination of foam and spring for pressure relief and edge-to-edge support. I had a great weekend with Lindsay sleeping on our Lisa mattress, even though we didn't uh, stand by a recent decision to kick Penny and Ginger out of bed at night. The band lasted maybe five minutes. Then we both got sad, imagined our dogs laying on the floor crying dog tears, uh, wondering what they had done to make uh, mom and dad forsake them. So in the end, all four of us slept hard on the sweet Lisa mattress. Mine isn't even the new and improved all foam model, and we still love it. And I hear the new mattress is even more comfortable. So get one. Get 15% off your entire order at lisa.com slash timesuck. Use the promo code timesuck. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash timesuck. Promo code timesuck. Link in the episode description button in the sponsor section of the website and app of timesuck. Uh, on May 25th, 1928, Edward Budd rode the subway to Manhattan to pay for a small ad in the Sunday paper. It read, young man, 18, wishes position in the country, Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. Edward had been working part-time as a truck driver, but was getting frustrated with not being able to find full-time employment. He wanted to get out of the city for the summer, find some work in the country for a few months. His mom suggested placing a classified ad in in the New York world, and Edward thought that was a great idea. And that ad is how Albert Fish found this poor, poor family. On May 28th, a Monday, 58-year-old Albert Fish shows up at the Bud family home pretending to be farm owner Frank Howard. Howard, a.k.a. Fish, told the Bud family he'd spent most of his working life as a painter and decorator in Washington, D.C., said he was able to save enough money to buy a small farm on Long Island. Said he had chickens and milk cows that provided him with a nice steady income, allowing him to employ a cook and five farmhands. But one of his workers had just decided to move on and he needed to replace him. What Fish was really doing at the Bud home was sizing up Edward. He wanted to recreate the experience he'd had with that 19-year-old Thomas Kedden back in that hot peanut butter fuck barn. Fish told Ed Bud he'd pay him $15 a week, an extremely generous amount, like more than double what people would normally make. Uh, an, an, an amount sure to make him very interested, not quite enough to make him think he was for sure being scammed. Ed asked if his friend Willie could also have a job, and Fish agreed. Fish told him to pack up some work clothes, He'd be back on Saturday, June 2nd to take them to this farm. And when Saturday comes, Fish doesn't show up. He, sent, he sends a Western Union message saying he was delayed and would be there the next day. Fish is stalling. He needed a little more time to put together the bondage and torture materials he felt would allow him to subdue and tie up two strong young men. Fish was almost 60, only 5'5", five, five, about 130 pounds. Tough for his size, tough for his age, but he couldn't take one of these guys in a fair fight, let alone both of them. But the thought of tying them up and torturing them excited him terribly, and he wanted to give it a go. On Sunday, June 3rd, Albert shows up to the Bud home again. He gives Ed's parents, uh, Delia and Howard, a basket of fresh strawberries and cheese he'd purchased at a local market, telling them he'd bought it or brought it from his farm. He has lunch with the family while he's waiting for Ed to return home. Ed was having lunch at his friend Willie's place. While having lunch, Fish sees 10-year-old Gracie Bud, Ed's little sister, and he changes his plans. He comes up with a story about his sister throwing a birthday party nearby for his niece. And when Ed and Willie return, he gives them money to watch a local movie. Apologize for the further delay, says he just has to go to this birthday party. He'll return in a few hours to take them to the farm. Then he thinks, hey, why not bring little Gracie? You know, said his niece was Gracie's age. He thought Gracie would have a great time at this made up birthday party. 
Back in the more trusting days of 1928, Gracie's parents, who were poor, didn't make it to too many parties, who couldn't afford to send their daughter uh, or, you know, throw a birthday party for their daughter and their friends, you know, daughters didn't have these kind of birthday parties, thinks, okay, this probably would be fun for her to do. Dalia would later say of Albert, why he was such a gentle sort of man, you wouldn't think he would step on an insect. He was so kind and fatherly how he fooled us. So they trust him, let him go, and then Ed and Willie go to the movies, and a few minutes later, Grace Bud walks out of the Bud family home with Albert Fish, and no one in her family would ever see her alive again. Throughout the summer of 1928, thousands of people searched for Grace Bud. Her disappearance made the front page of papers. Thousands of flyers were distributed. Search parties combed neighborhoods and forests. No one could find a trace of information. Authorities quickly came to believe that Frank Howard was a fictitious alias, but they couldn't find out who Frank really was. Suspects were gathered. One man, convicted felon Albert E. Cothrell, was even charged with Grace's kidnapping after her mother, Delia, positively identified him. She was delusional with grief. Charges were later dropped. A man named Herbert J. Sherry was briefly investigated. A man named Charles Howard, a 50-year-old guy from Florida who was on the run after defrauding his new bride of $2,800, was investigated. Uh, This woman contacted the police to report the crime, adding that she thought Charles was Frank Howard, the kidnapper of the Bud Girl. Charles got arrested, placed into a lineup. He was also identified by Delia Budd as her daughter's kidnapper. Charles Howard, however, was able to provide a watertight alibi and was off the hook for the kidnapping. On September 3rd, 1930, a woman named Jesse Pope tells police that her estranged husband, Charles Pope, had done it. Another Charles, a lot of the same names in the story. A couple Alberts, a couple Charles, uh, a couple Billies. According to Mrs. Pope's story, she had received a telegram from her husband on the day of the Budd kidnapping, asking her to meet him on the corner on the, of High and Smith Streets, a few blocks from her home. When she arrived at the rendezvous point, she found her husband waiting with a pretty brown-haired girl of about 10. He asked her to look after the girl for a few days. She refused. Pope then left in a huff, taking the girl with him. Delia Bud brought in, and yet again, third time now, identifies the wrong man as her daughter's kidnapper. I mean, you would think at this point they would have anyone but her come in and, and, and identify a suspect. Because right? she's just identifying everybody. Just He did it. He's for sure the man who took Grace. Uh, uh, ma'am, that is that is the officer who brought in the suspect. Oh, I'm I'm terribly sorry. Well, well, then he did it. Then that's the man who took Grace, ma'am. Ma'am, that is your husband. I'm I'm terribly sorry. Well, then he did it. I'll never forget a face, and that is the man that took my baby, ma'am. That's a mirror, ma'am. That is your reflection. How about how about we have your son Eddie come in? How about you go sit sit over there and just kind of stay quiet? Uh, poor woman, man. She's just out of her fucking mind. Poor Charles Pope endured hours of interrogation, stuck steadfastly to his denials, saying that his wife had it in for him. That his wife may, uh, has had it in for him ever since he was made executor of his father's $30,000 estate. And then it goes on to add that Mrs. Pope had even tried to have him committed to an insane asylum in an attempt to get her hands on that money. Pope was charged anyway, sent to trial. On December 22nd, 1930, the judge listens to testimony from only two witnesses in Charles's case, Delia Budd and Jesse Pope. Mrs. Budd surprises the court by stating that her earlier identification of Pope had been mistaken. Of course it was. She will pick anyone they put in front of her. Uh, Mrs. Pope squirmed and contradicted herself numerous times in a cross-examination, eventually admits that she did indeed hold a grudge against her husband. The judge reprimands her, instructs the jury to return a verdict of not guilty, which they do. After more than three months in custody, Charles Pope is a free man. Meanwhile, the Buds still have no idea what happened to Grace. And then six years after she goes missing, something happened that would finally lead to finding Grace's remains and also lead to the arrest of Albert Fish. On June 4th, 1934, six years and one day after she disappeared, the Daily Mirror in New York runs a photo of two soldiers posing with their dates in Manhattan. That month, New York City played host to the U.S. Navy. 
On May 30th, the entire U.S. fleet, comprising 185 warships, sailed into New York's harbor. Over the next two and a half weeks, the city rolled out the red carpet for 22,000 enlisted men swarming across the city, taking them to the delights of Times Square, Chinatown, Coney Island, New York's other attractions. And one Daily Mirror reader, a Brooklyn housewife named Adele Miller, became convinced that the girl in one of the photographs was Grace Budd. Took a pair of scissors, snipped a picture from the newspaper, drew an arrow pointed to the girl with the caption, this is that girl, Grace Budd. And then she mailed it to the Budd family, whose uh, address she was able to get, you know, because it had been in the press previously. And of course, Dalia thinks this is Grace. This poor grieving woman continues to see what she wants. It's not Grace. The following morning, Dalia and Albert Budd take the subway to the missing persons bureau, show the picture to Detective King, with uh, this guy is the badass I mentioned much earlier in the uh, show about being the guy who would do incredible police work to solve this case. Within hours, the newspapers get wind of the story. They reprint it along with copy that suggests that the Bud girl had finally been found. And then the woman from the photograph, 16-year-old Florence Swinney, walks into a police station in the Bronx on Thursday, June 14th, and identifies herself. It's not Grace, it's me. The Bud family left without any clues as to what happened to Grace yet again. But this mix-up would not turn out to be a total loss. The false identification leads to renewed interest in the Bud case. More articles appear in New York City papers wondering what has happened to Grace Bud. On November 2nd, 1934, Walter Winchell, one of New York's biggest gossip columnists, runs the following piece in the New York Daily News. I checked on the Grace Bud mystery. She was eight when she was kidnapped six years ago. Uh, I think she's actually 10, but whatever. Uh, it is safe to tell you that the Department of Missing Persons will break the case or they expect to in four weeks. They're holding a, a, a cokey now at Randall Island who is said to know most about the crime. Grace is supposed to have been done away with in Lyme, but another legend is that her skeleton is buried in a local spot, more anonymous. Now, the story was false information. The story was the false information given to Winchell by New York City detective, Detective King, that William King, the hero of today's show. He hoped that more articles about Grace would encourage the killer to eventually uh, reach out. And it did work. Albert Fish, as we know, based on his classified ad scams, was a reader of the paper. And he'd been reading everything about Grace's disappearance over the years. And this crazy fuck, for whatever reason, probably just to inflict more pain on innocent people, decides to write the Bud family and set the record straight regarding what had happened to their daughter. Obviously, this letter is going to be horrific. I'm going to read it in its entirety. Here we go. My dear Mrs. Bud, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two officers went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was one to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for a steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body, is sold as veal cutlets. Brings the highest price. John stayed there so long that he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them up in a closet, burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night, he spanked them, tortured them to make their meat good and tender. First, he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and, of course, the most meat. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except the head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. The little boy was next, and he went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street. He told me so often how good human flesh was, and I made up my mind to taste it. 
On June 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street and brought you pot cheese and strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat on my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in the closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run down the stairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked, how she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take the meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though, though I could have if I wished. She died a virgin. What the fuck? What kind of cold-blooded, disgusting son of a bitch could A, do this, and then B, send that letter to Grace's family? No idea, by the way, if this Captain John Davis character was a real person. I doubt it. I mean, he could have been. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, if he could have been real, he could have really eaten someone in China. Historically, cannibalism, not as taboo in China as it has been in the West. Not kidding. Read a number of articles on this. And various famines in China, as recent as the Great Chinese Famine in the late 1950s and early 1960s, there have been numerous reports of widespread cannibalism. But none of the reports took it to the cartoonish level of, you know, every kid under 12 being sold for fucking meat. Uh, I love how he felt it important to point out that he didn't have sex with her, you know, just uh, just killed her and ate her. That's all, you know, like he's some kind of fucking weird gentleman. Listen here, gals and ghouls, Albert Fish is many things, but above all, he is a gentleman. I never once considered desecrating or penetrating her innocent lady parts. I was just hungry and wanted a snack. While you may find my choice of meat uh, shocking and vile, I can assure you that it would be a normal lunch in Hollywood. Not a single moving picture gets made without a thousand plus children eating in at least a metric ton of hot steamy peanut butter dispensed from sweet little butter bottoms. Some producers get their own films on Chunky or even Extra Chunky. I myself make movies with nothing but extra creamy peanut butt butter. It's a fucking terrible letter. Arrived at the Bud home November 12th, 1934. Luckily, Delia, borderline illiterate, couldn't read it. Instead, she handed it to her son, Eddie, the young man who was Fish's original target. Ed's face went pale, contorted with anger. He refused to tell his mom what it said, bolted out the door. Within an hour, he was handing it over to Detective King. And it was all King would need to bust this piece of shit. He compared the handwriting of this letter to the Western Union message Fish had sent to the Buds back in 1928, you know, saying he'd be a, he'd be a day late to see Edward. It, of course, was a perfect match. Then he looked into the address Fish had claimed to live at in the letter back when he got the taste for human flesh, 409 East 100 Street. Was the author of the letter really dumb enough to include a former address or former residence address? He was. And this address was inside the main zone where King had directed search party efforts back when Grace originally went missing. King was now certain that whoever wrote this letter was indeed Grace's killer. And then upon further examination, Detective King realized that the writer of this letter had made another mistake. On the back flap of the envelope the letter came in, there was a six-sided symbol with the letters NYPCBA arranged around it, one to each side. Uh, Underneath this emblem was a two-line address, which someone, presumably the sender, had attempted to obliterate. Using a magnifying glass, Detective King was able to make out the words 627 Lexington Avenue, New York City. NYPCBA turned out stood for uh, what was at this address, the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. After making a call to the union president, Arthur Ennis, of this association, King sets out across town with the envelope in hand. Yes, Ennis said this envelope was definitely official NYPCBA. He convinced 
uh, this Ennis to call an emergency meeting. At the meeting, he asked, has any member removed stationery from the association's offices? Did any member know someone who might have done so? After the meeting, a young man named Lee Sikowski said that a few months earlier, fucking Pol- this is one of the nicest things a Polish person's ever done. This is the, this is the only time a Polish person's helped in one of these stories. Uh, no, but he says that Sikowski said a few months earlier, he had taken a few sheets of writing paper and some envelopes from the office for personal use. Said he'd taken the stationery while he lived at 200 East 52nd Street, room seven, and he thought he had left some behind in that room before he moved. Well, Detective King goes to this room, goes to East 52nd Street, finds a landlady, Frida Schneidner, tells her his Grace Bud story, including what Frank Howard, aka Albert Fish, was known to look like, and Frida did say why that sounds like Mr. Fish. She told King that Fish was no longer living there, but still stopped by once a month to pick up a check one of his sons was sending to him at that address, and King knew he was going to fucking get this guy. King immediately sets up 24-7 surveillance at 200 East 52nd Street and is so dedicated, he rents a room and stays there himself. He stays in room number seven, Fish's old room. I fucking love this guy. Rest in peace, Detective King, you beautiful, glorious bastard. Time sucks, one-eyed, three-legged pit bull, sometimes crime fighter Bojangles, pants heavily in approval. Bojangles loves a kick-ass cop. Good boy, Bojangles. King traces Fish's son to North Carolina, the one that sent him the money, where he's working at the Civilian Conservation Corps one of the programs set up under President FDR's New Deal, making sure that Fish Jr. is not tipped off, King instructs the CCC paymaster to let him know as soon as the next paycheck is mailed out. That call came into King on December 4th uh, with an envelope addressed to Albert Fish intercepted at the Grand Central Post Office the following day. On December 13th, 1934, Fish shows up at the boarding house to collect his mail. King, who had to attend a meeting at police headquarters that particular day, receives a frantic call from Ms. Schneider, Asks her to stall Fish until Fish can get there, until uh, King can get there. King literally runs to find Fish seated at the kitchen table, sipping from a teacup. The old man dressed in a mismatched outfit of stripped, striped trousers, tweed jacket, vest and tie, black overcoat, battered fedora, resting on a chair. And he says, you're Albert Fish, as he walks into the room. Fish silently stares at King for a moment, kind of measuring him, then pushes back his chair, slowly rises to his feet as King crosses the room towards Fish. When King gets close, Fish reaches into his vest pocket, whips out a fucking razor blade, slashes at Detective King. This dude really is the boogeyman. King dodges the slice of Fish's blade, grabs his bony wrist, you know, with the hand that's holding this blade. Fish cries out, slumps back into his chair. The razor goes skittering across the floor, just like you'd hope would happen if this was a scene in a movie. King tells the old demon, I've got you now. The fucking boogeyman, the werewolf of Wisteria, the Brooklyn vampire, the gray man, the moon maniac. The man of many other nicknames the press gave him back in 1934, 1935, finally caught. And he would never harm another child, all thanks to Detective King. Yeah, yeah, yeah! Hail Nimrod! Fish was driven to police headquarters, taken to the office of Captain John G. Stein, head of Missing Persons Bureau, for his interrogation to be conducted by Detective King himself. King could hardly believe that the man seated before him, just a five foot five, 130 pounds of shrunken, wrinkled meat sack, was the criminal who had eluded him for over six years. Fish quickly admitted he was the author of the nasty letter to the Bud family, but wouldn't admit he killed Grace until King told him he was going to bring in the Bud family to, to spot him, to, you know, to point at him and tell him, yep, that's the guy. And then this Weasley fucking coward wants no part of that and admits, I killed Grace Bud. Then King starts confessing all kinds of shit. Tells King he originally intended to kill Edward and Willie, but was disappointed when he saw how strong they looked. But then he decided to at least give it a shot, bought some murder and torture items from a local pawn shop, a cleaver, a handsaw, and a butcher's knife. Says he brought these tools wrapped up and hidden back towards the Bud home the day he took Grace. 
hid them near where he bought the family that strawberries and cheese. So when he had dinner with the family, he changed his mind to go after Gracie. I uh, said Grace was excited to, to go to a birthday party, was happy to board a train with him. Said she got so excited, said he got so excited to kill Grace. He left the murder weapons in a little, you know, wrapped up in cloth on the train when they departed. And then little Gracie, oh my God, this poor girl was the one who reminded him, hey, mister, you forgot your package. She ran back and got them for him. How fucking tragic is that? She ran back to grab her own murder tools. Fish uh, watched Grace or walked Grace to an abandoned home, a place that looked like a straight up haunted house. I've seen the pictures known to locals as Wisteria Cottage. Grace played amongst the wildflowers in the yard while Fish went upside and got ready. Fish went up to the uh, upstairs bedroom where he could watch Grace play, undressed, got his weapons ready, just like he stated in that letter, called his tools, the, his implements of hell, by the way, called out to Grace, came inside, you know, he hid and waited, you know, and then he choked her to death as he, as again, he wrote about in that letter. Then he cut her head off with a saw. King asked if he raped her. He insisted he had not, as he stated in his letter to the butts. He would, however, later admit to having two involuntary ejaculations while strangling her. Echoes of Chikatilo here. Fish said he cut her body in two, separating her at the waist. He then threw both sections of her body in the closet, placed her head on some newspapers on the floor, cleaned himself up, and left. Said he came back four days later to hide the body and his tools, throwing them over a wall into some bushes. Later, he would also admit, as he stated in the letter, that he took parts of her body to take home and eat. The following day, December 14th, King, Fish, and some officers go to Wisteria Cottage to find Grace's remains. Fish seemed excited as he led officers to where he had tossed her body parts, and sure enough, that's where they found him. The Bud family was notified. Edward came to the police station to positively identify Fish. He had to be physically restrained by multiple officers when he saw him and physically removed from the building to keep from beating Fish to death. I bet he did. Can you imagine how you would feel if you were Edward and Grace was your sister? In mid-December 1935, Fish tried to claim insanity to avoid a murder trial, but the court wouldn't let him get off that easy. The DA was able to prove that while he was undoubtedly a deeply disturbed individual, he understood the implications of his actions. He tried to get away with them. Therefore, he was legally sane. He was indicted for the kidnapping and murder of Grace Budd. Over the next several weeks, various detectives would interrogate Fish in the hopes of solving other local unsolved murders. Numerous witnesses came forward, identified Fish as the man who had attacked or tried to attack them. One of these witnesses was Benjamin Eisman. A 26-year-old Eisman encountered Fish 10 years earlier when he was 16. Eisman said he'd be sitting on a bench in Battery Park when Fish sat down beside him and struck up a conversation. He told Eisman that he was a house painter and could use a strapping young lad like him as an apprentice. Unemployed at the time, desperate for any sort of work, Eisman had agreed to accompany Fish to a job in Staten Island. Along the way, Eisman said they passed by a deserted cabin where Fish instructed Eisman to remain outside while he went into the house to fetch his tools. While he was waiting, Eisman was approached by an elderly man who had warned him to leave. I've seen many kids go into that house, the man said, but none of them ever came out. Eisman was alarmed enough by the stranger's warning to take his advice and bolt. Oh man, once he heard what Albert had been charged with, I bet he was a little more than overjoyed to have made that decision. And how many other kids went in there and never came out? Like we'll never know the real number of Albert's victims. Fish is only put on trial for what he did to Grace Budd for no other crimes because her murder charge carried the death penalty and he had confessed, they'd found the body, there was eyewitnesses to, uh, to him kidnapping Grace. It was a slam dunk case and the only one they needed against him. Fish's only hope to stay alive now was to again try and prove he was insane and, and, and you know, maybe be, get committed to a psychiatric facility instead of being sent to death row. On March 11th, 1935, Fish's trial begins. The trial would last less than two weeks. Again, it's a slam dunk case. On Thursday, March 21st, the second to last day of the trial, Assistant District Attorney Gallagher calls his expert witnesses in to rebuff the insanity claims of Fish's defense team. First up was Dr. Manus S. Gregory, former head of the psychiatric department at Bellevue. 
Gregory, who had examined Fish in 1930 when he was an inmate at the hospital. Yeah, because Fish, uh, he did uh, in his uh, story too, get sent to a psychiatric facility a few times. Obviously, always released. He contended that Fish was abnormal but sane, a diagnosis that clearly annoyed Fish's attorney, James Dempsey, who contended that no one who ate... <laughs> they did argue this in court. He, con- he contended that no one who ate as much shit as Albert Fish could be considered sane. And he said, is it a common thing, doctor, for a man to drink urine and eat human feces? Gregory countered, it's not as uncommon as you think. I know of successful people, artists, teachers, financiers who have the same perversion. Another prosecution witness, psychiatrist, Dr. Charles Lambert would add, I know individuals prominent in society, one individual in particular that we all know, and then Dempsey interrupts, who actually ate human feces? And then Lambert continues, who regularly uses it as a side dish for his salad. What the fuck? Is shit eating really that common? And again, if I sound like I'm being judgy, yeah, I sure am. We, we all judge certain things. And if you like to eat shit, yeah, I think you're pretty fucking weird. Are people re- really just casually hitting a side of human shit with their salad? What a strange compulsion. On the list of things you're not supposed to eat, I feel like shit is pretty high. Somewhere uh, below poison and somewhere maybe above fire. On March 22nd, Fish is found guilty of the mutilation and premeditated murder of Grace Budd. He'll be sentenced to electric chair three days later on the 25th. On the 24th, Fish decides to come clean about the murder of Billy Gaffney. He clearly hoped that confessing to more insane shit would sway the judge's decision about whether he should be committed or fried. Fish told a group of lawyers and investigators assembled into the courtroom, I took him to the public dumping ground in Riker Avenue in Astoria. There is a house near there that I painted for the man that owns it. I took the boy there and stripped him naked and tied his hands up and feet and gagged him with a rag and I picked up that I picked up at the dump. Then I burned his clothes and threw his shoes in the dump. Then I walked back and took the trolley at 59th Street at 2 a.m. and walked from there home. The next day at 2 p.m., I took tools and a homemade cat of nine tails. I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from his legs. I cut off his ears and nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear. I gouged out his eyes. He was dead then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. Fuck, he, Jesus Christ. And again, it's hard to say if he was just saying this to try and be like, I'm crazy. Please, I'm crazy. Look how crazy I am. Or if he really did this shit, which based on what we know about him is very possible. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I had a grip with me. I put his nose, ears, and a few slices of his belly in the grip. Then I cut through the middle of his body just below the belly button, then through his legs about two inches below his behind. I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off the head, feet, arms, hands, and legs below the knee. Then I put in sacks weighed with stones, tied the ends, and threw them into pools of slimy water you will see along the road going to North Beach. The water is three to four feet deep. They sank at once. I came home with my meat. His monkey and peewees, a nice little fat behind, I roasted in the oven to eat. I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face, and belly. I put onions, turnips, celery, salt, and pepper. It was good. Then I split the cheeks of his behind open, cut off his monkey and peewees, and washed them. I put strips of bacon on each cheek. I put it in the oven. Then I picked four onions, and when the meat had roasted for about a quarter hour, I poured about a pint of water over it for, for gravy and put in the onions. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown, cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet fat little behind it. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey was as sweet as a nut, but his peewees I could not chew. I threw them in the toilet. Fuck, good God. He is describing about the darkest shit you can describe here. The kidnapping, murder, and consuming of a child. But the language he uses, it just fucking, <laughs> the shit just kept making me laugh. Like, I don't, my brain doesn't know how to process it any other way. Th- this, this suck made me question my own sanity numerous times. 
just the way this weird old man in the 1930s apparently spoke. It just, it just made <laughs> the horrible shit he did so much more comedic for me than it should be. Like if he had said something like maybe today somebody would say, hey, I fucking killed that Brett, cut his fucking dick off, ate it, wish I could do it again, hell, Satan. No humor in that. There's no part of me that's laughing at all. But instead, he is talking like, listen, I get that a lot of you blue noses can't wrap your noggins around this, but a lot of us showbiz types enjoy a sweet little monkey and some chewy peewees to snack on. Why, Chris Kraft's applesauce, <laughs> I do declare that I do enjoy a tasty behind with some onion gravy even more than a choice bit of Calico's Hotsy Totsy Cock Traps. Now be a good sport and fetch me some fresh peanut butter. Just, it's, it's just so crazy. March 25th, his fish was being let out of the courtroom. A reporter asked him how he felt about the verdict. I feel bad, he said. I was expecting Matawan, which is the New York State Hospital for Criminally Insane at that time. In the aftermath of the Bud case, the press tried to play up Albert Fish's masochistic desire to be executed. But that is not entirely true. He was desperate to escape punishment. During the trial, he fired his original attorney. He tearfully begged the jury to show him the mercy he sure as shit showed no one else. Speculation that he was looking forward to being electrocuted does seem to come from a, a quote, uh, a, a reply Fish gave to a reporter once he was sentenced to the chair. The reporter asked him how he felt about this decision, and Fish replied, What a thrill it will be to die in the electric chair. It will be the supreme thrill, the only one I haven't tried. And I do wonder, once he accepted his fate, he probably did look forward to it on some level. Uh, Albert's execution date was originally set for Albert, uh, April 12th, 29th, excuse me, April 29th. Before this date, Fish admitted to another murder. He admitted that he had lured young Francis McDonald, the police officer's son, into the woods, strangled him to death with his own suspenders in the summer of 24. He'd been about to butcher the corpse when he thought that he heard someone approaching and fled. Directly after his death sentence, Albert Fish was sent to Sing Sing to await execution. On April 3rd, 1935, his attorney, James Dempsey, filed an appeal citing, among other things, the judge's definite hostility towards the defense and the jury's failure to consider that there might be a reasonable doubt as to Albert Fish's sanity. The judge quickly dismissed that appeal. Hail Nimrod. On the morning of January 16th, 1936, Fish is moved to a cell in the death house at Sing Sing, an area referred to by inmates as the dance hall. He eats a hearty lunch of T-bone steak, orders a chicken dinner. Although by evening, he appeared to have lost his appetite. He barely picked at his final meal. Because he's really realizing that this is going to happen for sure. At around 10.30 p.m., the Protestant chaplain of the prison, Reverend Anthony Peterson, arrives to pray with Fish at 11 a.m., a couple of, uh, or 11 p.m., excuse me, a couple of guards enter his cell. Fish showed no emotion as he caught his first glimpse of the electric chair. He simply allowed himself to be led towards the apparatus, slumped himself down in it, brought his hands together in a praying gesture while the attendants busied themselves with strapping his legs, torso, and finally his arms into place. His face appeared drawn and gaunt in the moment before the executioner, Robert Elliott, dropped the black hood over his head. The leather cap with the attached electrode was then placed on Fish's closely cropped head with the chin strap, chin strap fashioned to hold it in place. Elliot then dropped uh, onto one knee and secured the second electrode to Fish's right leg. Elliot stepped away and positioned himself at the control panel. There had been suggestions in the press prior to the execution that the needles Fish had inserted into his pelvis might short out the chair. Afterwards, there would be rumors that they had generated a cascade of sparks in the moment Fish was put to death. Neither of those things happened. What happened was, uh, right after midnight, Elliot threw the switch, sending a surge of electricity through Fish's body. And as the current flowed, fish became rigid, his slight frame straining against the bonds, his, fish, his fists tightly clenched, the current was switched off, causing him to slump in the chair, activated then for a second time. During the second jolt, Albert Fish did briefly regain consciousness just long enough to sing his famous last words, Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. Can someone spank me now? Fill my mouth with sweet peanut butter. Cut off my dicky now. 
Oh, good night, everyone. That's how they do it in Hollywood. Zap. Of course, he didn't sing that. He just died. Thank God. He just died. At precisely, uh, um, uh, sorry, a few minutes later, uh, the attending physician stepped forward, placed his stethoscope to Fish's chest. Moments later, he announced that Albert Fish, the murderer of Grace Budd, Billy Gaffney, Frank Dis McDonald, and perhaps countless other children was gone forever. Good fucking riddance. And that takes us out of today's timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. I'm going I'm to correct myself really quick uh, before anybody sends in any, any letters. January 16th, 1936, I said that he was executed right after midnight. So it would have been the uh, 17th. That's actually not true. I, uh, I didn't see that in my notes. And then I just, I, I assumed, which you should never do. And actually he was uh, executed precisely 11.09 p.m. So he was executed for, for anybody who's, you know, wants to know that, that exact moment. It did happen on January 16th. 1936 at, yeah, at exactly 1109. That's when he, that's when he sang his song. That's when he didn't do that. Uh, but what a tale, huh? Man, so messed up. But I did find it just so darkly fascinating. What a strange, uh, strange, just peculiar, horrible person. Before we bounce to our takeaways, I want to share just a few more quotes from those who knew him that I just found interesting. His son, Albert Fish Jr., uh, had the following to say about his father after his death. That skunk would do anything. Frequently, he used to undress in front of small children. And once someone found him nude in his bedroom, beating himself with a whip. Up to a couple of months ago, I worked with him in an apartment house at 1883 Amsterdam Avenue, Amsterdam Avenue, Manhattan. I did all the work and he collected all the money. He used to wake up often in the middle of the night screaming. Usually it was something like, bud, bud. Naturally, I didn't connect it at the time. He quit after the tenants got a petition against him. There were a half dozen complaints that he had abused children. So it appears, you know, that his uh, his kids, while, he, while they may have agreed that he provided at least a home for them, didn't think he was a, a good dad. Also appears that the sexual abuse of children not taken seriously enough in New York City in the early 20th century, like petition? What? Not, not police, a petition. Just people just, I am for one sick and tired of one Albert Fish molesting and raping the children of this building. I'm sick of him walking through the halls, nude, face covered in peanut butter. It's high time we think about a petition to have this scoundrel removed from the premises. Uh, also, Frederick Wertheim, a German-born psychiatrist who spent a lot of time with Fish after his arrest, who was used by the court to help determine if Fish was insane or not, had this to say about Fish. Fish's life was one of unparalleled perversity. There was no known perversion that he did not practice and practice frequently. <laughs> I really think that quote still sums him up today. Fish's life was one of unparalleled perversity. Now, let's recap his perversity with today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Albert Fish was born on May 19th, 1870. It was electrocuted by the state of New York on January 16th, 1935, at the age of 65. By the time he died, he had literally eaten shit for over 50 years. Number two. Fish confessed to the murders of three children, but may have killed many, many more than that. He himself guesstimated in the last months of his life that he'd harmed over 400 children in some terrible way. Number three, 29. That's how many large needles were found in Fish's groin after he was arrested for the murder of Grace Bud. And that's the, a quote from the, the police there, large needles. The defense hoped this evidence would prove he was insane. Some of the needles had been stuck inside him for so long they'd begun to corrode. Number four, peanut butter. Are you ever going to be able to think about peanut butter the same way 
after today's suck. Sweet, fresh, piping hot, peanut butt butter. Good luck with that. Number five, new info. I have loved the satirical humor of The Onion ever since I first heard about it many years ago. And in 2018, The Onion did a satirical fake news story that involves Albert Fish. After what you've just heard, I thought you might like this. The fake news story's title was Serial Killer Annoyed by Young Murders with No Appreciation for Albert Fish. Seattle, Washington. Saying they had no respect for the luminaries who had come before them and helped pave the bloody way, serial killer Gerald Pinckney expressed his annoyance Wednesday with young murderers who held no appreciation for innovative child rapist and cannibal Albert Fish. Man, these millennials think they invented wholesale homicide, but they haven't got a clue about the revolutionary work Fish was doing a century before they even came onto the scene, said Pinckney, 52, expressing his frustration that the most recent generation of killers barely seemed aware of the notorious torture killer who terrorized New York in the early 20th century. That man did more using a saw, meat cleaver, and butcher knife than these youngsters could ever hope to do with their power tools and dentistry instruments. But you try mentioning the moon maniac or the werewolf of wisteria to them, and they just give you this blank look. They're all Dahmer this and gain that. Just no idea whatsoever that those guys were following in the fish's footsteps. It's total bullshit. And that is all for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Albert Fish has been sucked, and oh, Albert Fish would have loved this suck if he himself could hurt it. He, uh, he would have fucking probably just been whipping himself and just uh, eating someone's shit and pissing on somebody and oh, just happy as a clam. Uh, as, as, as much as he, he was sucked as much as he could be in one episode. There's other details of his life out there. If you're curious, uh, several other podcasts have done numerous episodes, you know, part two, three, four, Justin Albert Fish. You can go on and on about this guy. I'm good with one. I think, I think you have a pretty good feel for who this dirtbag is. Plenty of horrific trivia to impress other true crime aficionados if his name comes up. I don't think we need three more episodes about somebody eating shit. Fucking weirdo. Big thanks, as always, to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Camp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dopner, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan, the guys at Bitalix or Danger Brain, Axis Apparel, Thanks to Kai Beamer and Nick Wenzel for providing me with the good jump on Fish's nonsense today. Uh, I had Zach script keeper Flannery sit this one out. Jump over to next week Darwin Awards suck. That's right. Next week. He's getting that one ready. I'm uh, getting that one ready myself now too. We're going to take a look at the discoveries of Charles Darwin, give an overview of his theory of evolution and how that has shaped our scientific understanding of the world around us. Talk about natural selection, other sciencey things, and then we'll have a, a nice long uh, look at some various Darwin Award winners. Who has checked out in the most avoidable and unnecessary of ways? Life is naturally hard. Who has taken it upon themselves to make it impossible? So a lot of dark humor coming next week that'll, I think, be a lot lighter, <laughs> even though it still involves death than, uh, than today's episode. Now let's take a peek at today's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. I'm going to open up with some critical feedback today. Uh, I don't want you to think that all I get is fluff stuff. This comes in from Sucker Brandon, who writes, I've always thoroughly enjoyed this show. Unfortunately, the quality of the content and preparation has gone down considerably. Seems Dan is sometimes reading a script for the first time during the show. Uh, I got this a few weeks ago, and I appreciate the feedback, Brandon. First off, let me just say that I've always been reading from a script since episode number one. Always. Every single show. A script that I write for myself. And one that I try to write uh, and make it as conversational as possible. I, I could never just wing this show. And as it's evolved and gotten more detail-orientated, 
uh, oriented, excuse me, um, even, even less possible to do it just to wing it. Like if you think I butcher words now, oh my God, if you, if, if you're, if some people are annoyed by the, the, the occasional, uh, now imagine one person trying to, to tell a very detailed story full of lots of dates, facts, names, other details in this, uh, you know, I, I think pretty, pretty nice narrative form by just kind of fucking winging it. Like there's no way. Or just kind of glancing at notes. There's no way anybody could possibly memorize and regurgitate that much information smoothly. Uh, I could just kind of glance at notes here and there, but then <laughs> there would be no more show because you guys, I for sure would stop listening. Maybe you, Brandon. Maybe you would continue to listen, but no one else would. Uh, however, I do agree with you. I do agree that I've come off too scripted in, in moments recently. It's because I've worried too much about being perfect, about pronouncing a word perfectly, about saying, uh, not too much. And, and worrying about other technical aspects of the press preparation, presentation. And when I worry too much about technicalities, I stop having fun. Instead of just thinking about what I'm saying and enjoying it, I'm in my head thinking like, oh man, I can't say, uh, oh gosh, I gotta, gotta hope that I pronounce this next word. I gotta say nuclear, right? When that, when that really, for what this show is, it really doesn't fucking matter. I like to work on that stuff because I like to uh, be an example of trying to improve yourself. And I think that's important in life, but also you can take that shit too far. Um, there's other more academic podcasts out there about all the subjects we do. If you really wanted to get every last detail, uh, you could listen to something else. Uh, this is, this is a nice primer for information, a nice way to, uh, I think engage people's curiosity and hopefully inspire some curiosity, learn about new things, get a, get a lot of facts, get a lot of details, but also have fun. Supposed to have fun. So, uh, if I lose having fun, I'll lose the whole show. So Brandon, you reminded me of that. So I thank you. I hope the show felt a little more spontaneous and fun today. Uh, as weird as it was now for some positive feedback that also includes, uh, another chance for me to address some critical feedback coming in from Shannon Wilk. Hey Dan, it's your loyal spaces or Shannon Wilk here. It was an honor to meet you Saturday at the early show in Boston. Not sure if you remember us as I'm sure you meet a ton of people, but I was toward the front of the line and totally fangirled out when we met. I was so excited that the Polish came out in me and I completely lost the ability to talk. And all I could do was hug you and smile. My husband who was looking forward to some updated remarks on Walmart, which I'm going to give here. It's never going to let me live that down. My only regret is losing the ability to speak because I had so much to say. I wanted to tell you how much I've enjoyed your comedy over the years, how much I've been listening to Suck since almost the beginning. Amazed at what you've done with it and how far it's grown. I'm honored that I've been a part of making that happen by being a space lizard. You sure have. Yes, thank you, Shannon, for being a space lizard. I wanted to tell you that you've taught me so much, mainly that I really enjoy serial killers, <laughs> and your thought-provoking rants have expanded my worldview in a way I didn't realize was possible. I truly appreciate everything you've done. And the Time Suck and everything the Time Suck team has put into every show. I can't wait to see what's next. Hopefully, next time you come to Boston, Nimrod will bless me with the ability to speak. Praise Will Jangles. Hail Nimrod. Long live the suck. That was all very nice, Shen. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's serial killer suck. Uh, now, your husband, yes, did tell me he thought I'd been a little unfair with the Walmart suck way back when. And I told him I agreed. I was still really finding my way early in the show. And the Walmart episode is one of the sucks I do regret the most. I, I, I don't regret a lot of things I said. I do still think the Waltons are greedy bastards. I still think they destroy small towns with what I consider to be some unfair business practices. However, I don't think they're as alone in doing that as I made them out to be in that suck. I think it's a little hypocritical for me to, to denounce them, but then also have an Amazon affiliate button on a website just because I like Amazon more when really they're part of the same problem. You know, it's a little bit hypocritical to denounce them and then go shop at Target. Maybe big businesses like Amazon, Target, Walmart are just an inevitable part of capitalism. Maybe they can coexist with mom and pa shops. I don't know. Uh, my main regret is that I didn't do a more, you know, more thorough research on what is necessary economically. And I still don't know if it's better to have a nation with, without big box stores or a nation with them. 
They can cut, you know, uh, they can outprice, excuse me, smaller competition who pay their employees more, but they can also provide cheaper products for those already on the poverty line whose quality of life would deteriorate rapidly if they had to try and buy all their goods from expensive local businesses. And I know not all local businesses are expensive, but you know what I mean? They can, they can drive down prices. And for some families, they truly rely on that discount to kind of get by. And again, it's more complicated than that. You can go back and listen to my rants in that episode if you, if you want to hear more of my thoughts. It's just tough. I still don't have the answers I want. But I would have taken a very different tone with that episode if I did it again now, instead of making it an obvious fuck the Waltons hatchet piece. Okay, next up, cool Vietnam-related update from Anthony Dugan. Anthony writes, Hail Nimrod, Lord Sucker. This message may not fit exactly towards the Vietnam War, but I lost a great uncle in Vietnam, and I feel Bojangles telling me to tell this Nazi-killing story. My grandfather took me to a VFW, or Veterans of Foreign Wars Club in Florida, after I came back from Iraq. He was a Korean War veteran and felt the need for me to meet these people. There was a quiet old man at the front of the place who said nothing until I left. After mingling and talking to all types of vets, this man looked me dead in the eye and said, what you, oh, uh, this quiet old man in the front of the place who said nothing until I left. Must have been before you left because you're talking to him. Anyway, maybe I, I, I don't know. Anyway, I, I get the point you're making here. After mingling and, walk, and talking to all types of vets, this man looked me dead in the eye and said, what unit are you in? I replied, 2-325-AIR. He smiled and said, you are welcome for the A. Now, most people don't get that, but for the re- but the reason the 325 has an A is because during World War II, the 325 was the only motherfucking unit to jump into combat in a giant metal plane called a glider. Uh, the gangster old man had a set of glider wings on his veteran hat with four combat jumps. That's all of them. I don't know if most people get that, but that means this man sat in a metal casket, fell to earth, and massacred Nazis four times like a boss, which gave them the Airborne Infantry Regiment moniker instead of the rest having Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 82nd Airborne Division. Sorry for the long message. Hail Lucifina, but the Vietnam War time suck got me thinking about the absolute legends I have met who will never get talked about. Yeah, thank you for sharing that nice uh, nice old man story. Man, that is that is intense. If there was only four of those missions and he was in all four of them, and I'm sure there was a very high casualty rate for each and every mission. Wow, the shit that guy saw. Another Vietnam update from Rhett Simpson, who writes, hey there, Master Holy Sucker. My grandpa was drafted into the infantry when he was 18. He had shared a couple crazy stories and photos with me. He fought mostly in the in Ladrang Valley. One of the stories he told me involved him and 51 other men in his platoon. They were walking across a rice paddy when the Viet Cong came out of their tunnels and shot at them from every direction. Two men made it out alive. My grandpa was one of them. The other man was wounded. That's how he was promoted to lieutenant. Another, he was fighting in a trench and the Vietnamese were infiltrating their trenches. Long story short, he went around a corner in a trench, then blacked out, woke up breathing out of a hole in his chest. Luckily, he lived and received a purple heart. When he got home after being treated for this, uh, for his... GSW, not so fully recovered. He was beaten so badly by three guys. He was in the hospital for a couple weeks. The reason they did it was apparently because people they knew didn't come home, but he did. He showed me pictures from over there. One was a pile of dead Vietnamese, literally 10 plus feet tall, probably 30 feet in diameter. I asked him why they did that. He said casually they were easier to burn that way. Holy shit. It's crazy what war will do to a person. My dad fought in Desert Storm also. They were both Marines, I should probably add. They both get that look in their eye when they're woke up by somebody. There's nobody in there. It's a look I can't explain. They instantly go into self-defense mode. I've woken my dad a few times to have him grab me before his eyes are even open. Hope you find these stories interesting. I literally cannot imagine what my grandpa saw over there. The ones he shared with me are hard to imagine, let alone the ones he can't talk about and he keeps boxed up. I asked him how many people he knew in Nam ended up on the wall and he said all but three. 
Wow. I know another guy who fought special forces. He said they would shoot people in the knees so they could see an American killing them all while casually laughing. He tells stories of people being blown up in front of him like he's talking about a normal day at work. He also fought with a guy who would sneak out at night and kill the enemy. Then he'd cut off their ears, hang them on a string. I guess this guy had an ear sash basically at one point. That wasn't Nomno. Thanks for having the best podcast ever, giving me something to look forward to every week. Hail Nimrod, Rhett Simpson. Holy shit, Rhett. Wow, man. Yeah, war is fucking brutal and fascinating. It brings out behavior that parallels what we cover in Serial Killer Sucks and otherwise healthy uh, meat sacks. I hope it's a long, long time before the U.S. is involved in another conflict as big and bloody as the ones you just described in Islam. And finally, one last Nam update from Tyler Mentink. An interesting perspective on the protests back home that I loved hearing. Uh, these are these are some nice ones, I think, uh, as we uh, talk about these on Memorial Day. Hello, Lord Suckington, Tyler writes. I write to you today in regards to the Vietnam sucks, specifically my family's experience with the anti-war protests in Davis, California, about 45 minutes east of Berkeley. During the war, my great uncle, father's uncle, rose from sergeant to lieutenant of Davis Police Department, retired as chief of police. Davis was and still is a very liberal college town. Uncle Vic took his oath to protect and serve his community very seriously. One of the primary forms of anti-war protest was to block the railway that ran through town, preventing boxcars full of guns, bombs, ammo, and supplies from making it to their ships in the San Francisco Bay in time. Uncle Vic recognized the students' right to protest a war that they disagreed with. However, as a Korean War veteran, as LEO, he believed he had a duty to protect and serve all of his community members, especially those deployed. The protest got so bad at one point that there were walks about bringing the national, there were talks about bringing the National Guard in to prevent the protests. Uncle Vic volunteered to resolve the situation without infringing on the students' right to protest. He went to the newspaper, had them publish incorrect train times, so a train carrying rice would be labeled as arms. Students would block the track, thinking that the train was full of guns, but in reality, they were holding up a rice shipment. The trains full of military supply would later pass in the dead of night. Wow. I wanted to share this for two reasons. First, Uncle Vic was a badass, and I love his stories. Went from growing up in a one-story dirt floor house to full-ride scholarship for college football, crashing my grandpa's first car, the first car anyone in the family ever owned, drafted in Korea to a Jeep accident that crushed his knees, preventing him from playing ball when he got home. After the war, he joined the police force, founded multiple narcotic units, became police chief in his town, retired to teach police and community relations at the local state college, a curriculum they still use today. Second, I feel like he demonstrated something that is very rare and was often now a very black and white society today. The ability to support both sides of a conversation while serving the needs of both sides. As a veteran, he could have called in the National Guard and tear gassed those rotten, good-for-nothing, pinko, commie, hippie, bastard students. Sarcasm. And as a member <laughs> and leader of an affluent liberal community, he could have stopped those weapons from getting to the cogs of the war machine. But as most meat sack suckers know, no conversation is ever that easy. If you took the time to read this, thank you. If you took the time to share it, thank you again. Meet Zach in training, Tyler. Thank you, Tyler. Love this. Yes, as most Meet Zachs know, life is gray. The truth is often in the middle of two, two opposing thoughts, two opposing ideologies. Life is nuanced and complex, not simple and black and white as a lot of people want to pretend it to be right now. So keep on sucking, my man. Hail Nimrod and hail the fuck out of Uncle Vic. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great weekend, everyone. Go easy on the peanut butter. Eating peanut butt butter is going to make it harder to keep on sucking. (laughs) 
Well, you know it's the best when the poop hits your chest. That's how I come. I'll shoot my seed when your ass starts to bleed. That's how I come. That's how I come. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.